You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the games begin. Mr. Tony Blauer, thank you so much for making the trek to Austin and being on Power Athlete Radio. Dude, I'm excited to be here live. We've done this sort of thing on Zoom and other stuff, but to be here, the Mecca, very I've seen that wall many times to see it in person. It's uh, be the hammer, man. Yeah, no, it's part of our mantra. Right. Uh, no, it's great to have you, but more importantly, it's such a much more rich experience having people in the studio opposed from Zoom. It's so sterile, like two-dimensional. For sure, so it's like, for sure. You know, there's no nuance. I dig it. I dig it. I'm, good. I'm excited to be here. I feel like the Zoom was just a product of COVID and the lockdowns that, like, you know, we did it, but it just became kind of the norm that that's how you started meeting with people, even people as close as next door. Yeah. It, it was, um, what's interesting is I was teaching online for years before that WebEx, Cisco, Skype, because I had people all over the world. I couldn't get to them or they couldn't get to me. So I was actually very comfortable with it when it started. And, uh, and I'm still, what's nuts is, you know, having high-speed internet and Zoom actually saved my business. There was a, a scary, uh, a lot of people who don't know, you know, what I do. All my business, my training, law enforcement, military, was in person. My high-gear suit for force-on-force scenario training was purchased by these people. So you suddenly you're entering a, initially the pandemic scare, so they're all deployed. And then it went through the defund the police era. And then it was them, like, leave, <clears throat> excuse me, leaving the job. All of my business just stopped, like literally stopped. And three, you know, uh, two weeks to flatten the curve turned into three months, turned into, oh, my God, I'm going to lose everything I ever built. And, uh, you know, do you know uh, Steve Weatherford? Mm-hmm. Real well. So, so Steve, I got to take a sip. Hang on. No problem. That bar I ate, I've got, <laughs> I hate to say this out loud, but I've got some nuts stuck in my throat. And that can, I'll that, just leave that one alone. Yeah, that won't be edited apparently. Now we got to leave in the solid gold. And um, the, uh, so I'm talking to Steve and I go, dude, like this is shit. Cause I'm like looking around and, and you know, cause you do courses with federal stuff, you know what your week rate is. And I canceled 35 classes. As a small company. And I didn't. With guys like you, and I don't know how much you struggled, but you had an online business already. Yeah. yeah. So you had not a, pass- a passive income. <clears throat> That's really stuck. <laughs> Hold on a sec. No problem. Um, I mean, I can go get a plunger. We could sneak it out real quick. That'd be a shot. Yeah, um, no, those bars are super thick. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I ate it too fast getting ready for this. So, um, uh like I looked at 35 classes canceled and I was like, it was like someone shoved a vacuum up my ass and started to suck up my insides. I'm like, Oh my God. And, um, at, at the time my wife just says, Hey sweetheart, dinner's ready. And I'm like ready to projectile vomit. Cause I was just doing the math in my head mm-hmm. and I went in and pretended to eat. I wasn't hungry. Are you okay? Yeah. I had a protein shake a little bit earlier. Like I didn't want to say what was going on. The kids are at the table. 
I gave myself 24 hours to just freak out and, 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 uh, called up my team the next day. I said to them, Hey, you know, you can't solve the problem if you are the problem. And I'm the bottleneck right now. I'm kind of freaking out. I need us. What are we going to do? Uh, and we all pivoted and came up with ideas. But one of the things was I was talking to, to Weatherford and I said, dude, holy shit. I was just sharing. He goes like, aren't you like a famous self-defense guy? And I go, yeah, I think so. He goes, I have like 100, 150 people who work out with me, him, on Zoom every day. Yeah. Uh, oh, so it's, it, yeah, it's insane. I, and, I, yeah. and, and he says, oh, like, I don't charge them because they're getting supplements from me and other stuff. He says, but why don't you try something like that? And literally, I was like, that conversation, I went, oh my God. I went and filmed the video, put it out to my audience, and I was very transparent. I said, I need your help if you can do this. I know this is hard for everybody, but if you've always wanted to train with me, give this a shot. And I started a garage gym five days a week. And I had 100 people sign up literally within days, and that saved my company. Nice. So so I get, I hate the Zoom thing, but it's like literally, a, like, oh, thank you, Zoom. Uh, and I still, even to this day, I don't need to. We got classes going on. We got I got a team in Australia now. We got a group going to the UAE. We got stuff going on. I still teach four times a week on Zoom. Oh, wow. I love it. Um, well, I mean, it's a great way to interact with people, especially in that environment. I found for podcasting, um, this medium where you're facing across from somebody to be such a much more rich experience. Oh, 100%. And then, God, I'm trying to remember the... I can't remember. I watched a podcast and the individual being interviewed was a you know neuroscientist. Oh, actually, I know what it is. It was uh, Mark Zuckerberg okay. on uh, Joe Rogan was talking about how they were trying to create AI and VR and go through the whole deal. And he talked about uh, the brain needs a three-dimensional model to make memories. Mm. And so if everything's two-dimensional, it becomes very hard to start cataloging and creating unique memories. And then I went back and realized that all the podcasts that yeah. we had done on Zoom, flat two screen, two-dimensional, flat, yeah. I couldn't necessarily differentiate between them. I had to go back and listen to them to remember finer points. But all the ones that were in person, total recall. Interesting. And that little piece was so impactful for me. So whenever I have the opportunity to do one in person, I kind of jump on it. Yeah. And so, you know, me being so close and, and uh, you, of course, you know how this came together, but your audience doesn't, you know, I had a pit stop in Dallas and it was like, dude, stay an extra day, come on the show. And it was like, let's do it. Yeah. So. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq. So uh, I'd love to get into fear. I know it's, you know, your mantra, it's really, you know, no fear. But um, fear is described as one of the seven basic emotions experienced by humans. Um, fear arises through the threat of harm, through physical and emotional, psychological, whether it's real or imagined. And it's such a fundamental piece of who we are as humans. You know, you think about from a evolutionary standpoint, fear was probably what allowed us to get to this point yeah Yeah, i mean something big's out there growling i can't see it it's dark i'm probably going to stay in the cave behind the rock so i don't go get eaten without the element of fear we probably would have been sure 
killed off hard long, into long us, ago. Yeah. So, I mean, um, when it comes to the word fear, and I know uh, I'm not going to say your name is synonymous with it, but in terms of like knowing, understanding, mastering, and more weaponizing fear, you probably know more about it than anybody, at least that I've ever come across. I, th- I think we uh, I appreciate that because it's, it's huge. I really believe that um, if we could teach kids and teachers and parents and adults how to understand the psychology of fear as different from the physiology of fear, that we would improve people's self-awareness. And if we improve people's self-awareness, we improve their critical thinking. If we change critical thinking on the planet Earth, things might, the pendulum might start to swing. So fear, it, you know, like in terms of origins and, and the evolution, like fear kept us alive and that's why we're here and dinosaurs aren't. Um, fear of starving to death pr- created hunting. Right, so there's a flip on it because we think about the fear as moving away from danger, but at some point, fear becomes bravery. That's my whole focus: is how do I help you, your family, uh, a cop, a soldier, whoever, turn fear into fuel? There's going to be situations in our lives where we get a fear spike that is outside uh, our uh, anticipated comfort zone, where you know. You know, you're training somebody and you know what his his PR is and you go, dude, today we're going up. And he goes, oh, man, coach, I don't know if I'm ready. And you're going, dude, you got this in you. Just remember that the, and what you're doing is you're you're moving him from comfort zone to discomfort zone. But if I said, you know, hey, what's your max bench or deadlift? And then I put an extra 100 pounds on like a lot of people wouldn't even try it. They sure. go, they would just go, holy shit. And I call that, I actually refer to that literally as the holy shit zone. So I've got comfort zone, discomfort zone, holy shit zone. And the holy shit zone puts you in the fear loop. And you could be an MMA fighter, a jujitsu guy. You could be a mom, a dad. Something happens in your life. A stimulus gets introduced too quickly. Uh, financial, relationship, medical, uh, violence, and it's just happening too fast where you just haven't anticipated it or you haven't prepared for it and you've, you've done no scenario for it. And the body in whatever terms, wherever you're from, goes, holy shit. And that fear spike creates doubt. Doubt creates hesitation. Hesitation creates procrastination. It's it, at the procrastination phase, John, that we need people to have that self-awareness switch to go, okay, I'm not moving now. The house is on fire and I'm going, ah, uh, my business is, is going, it's, is tanking. Ah, right. I mean, a lot of people in the last few years, some took their lives, some left their families, some let their business go. And some people got to work and got busy and reinvented themselves or whatever. It's not the biomechanics. You know, I, I like to talk about in the, in the tactical training, I remind people, your technical skills are the least important of everything you, you bring to this fight and people selective listeners hear that as tony just said technique's not important like no you know lots of guys with good technique that can't optimize all the mind body spirit elements because of fear when i and i've been studying this shit since the 80s when i unpack anything and i unpeel any onion metaphoric onion at the end of it if I say, hey, let's go to lunch tomorrow, uh, uh, later today, and you go, what do you want? I go, I don't know, like, you want to go for sushi, you want to go for a burger? All hesitation 
is a product of fear. I don't want to make the wrong choice. Which way should we, do, you know, go to the airport? It's rush hour. Uh, it feels like a lot of pressure. Right. I mean, um, you know, I figure if we're going to go to lunch, even if the lunch isn't good, I'm going to eat lunch tomorrow. Right. If we make a wrong turn, we have the ability to make a U-turn. Right. Um, from its fundamental basis, like, um, do you ever go in and within a definition of fear to allow people to, you know, create a framework to build upon? Yeah. I know a power athlete, um, you know, much like my influence with Greg Glassman, I thought it was extremely intelligent that he defined fitness. Yeah. And then you put a de- definition together. And then it allows you to create a framework in which to build your training system. For me, I defined athleticism because that's when I really realized our technology and what we were going after was developing and fostering athleticism. So it required a definition. I wonder if there's a foundational definition because when you mention fear, it's really just an emotion, but it's more than that. Mm. Um, it's, it's this, uh, it's this wedge. It's, um, it's, it's a high tide. It's a wind. I mean, it's all these things It pushes people and becomes one of the most fundamental uh, forces within the and you know within life to you know force you into doing something. It it is the most and very astute of you and very interesting because I've been saying this for years. Everything we do in life runs through a conscious or unconscious fear filter. You know, I was having a conversation yesterday with my wife over our toothpaste, where she's using toothpaste with no fluoride in it. And she just went to the dentist and she asked the specialist there, "Hey, is fluoride good or bad?" And the, the dental assistant said, there's nothing wrong with having it in your toothpaste. Well, my wife, Jessie, had bought off on some no fluoride. But an expert said fluoride. So it's like, it's, it's the which wolf do you feed? Mm-hmm. It's the fear. Uh, even though people who know what I do, it's all oh, the startle flinch conversion and covering the head and push away danger. Like fear works at a noxious level. Hey, go ask her for a date she's out of my league. She's not, I'm going to get rejected. Fear Uh, of rejection. Yeah. And so like fear is way more than just an emotion. And there's, and there are schools of thoughts that go fear isn't real. It's an imagined event, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I go, what fear produces cortisol is cortisol real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fear creates hesitation and doubt. And so accidents happen. You were supposed to hit the gas, you hit the brake. Uh, You were supposed to uh, duck, but you, froze you got deer in the headlights fear has killed people yeah uh, by heart attack by stress so fear is very real even if it's not real and and i love and i use an acronym in our training false expectations appearing real false expectations appearing real it's when i'm visualizing an event in the future that's debilitating me in the present it's that simple and that's the magic of like when when um when you learn like the system that we've mapped out where you go, okay, I get a fear spike. I can't control that. I was doing this and also fear spike. My physiology will change. I'll go from parasympathetic to sympathetic. Everyone's got fight, flight, freeze and all that. I go, that's all irrelevant if we don't have a, a coaching blueprint, but it needs to be our coaching blueprint. I, I can't call you up and go, hey, I, I got to lift a heavy weight. It fell on somebody I love. Uh, do, which script do I use? Is it like you're doing, dude, get the fucking weight off, right? You got to, you got to move. We don't have time to warm up in life sometimes. So, uh, this, this idea, you know, I've been saying this for decades that, that who you talk to, therefore who you marry, where you work, how much money you make, where you live, how much weight you lift and whether or not you defend yourself 
are all determined by your relationship with fear. The fear spike happens first. And so, and you know this, the mind navigates the body. Mm-hmm. And everyone uses the term muscle memory, but there's no such thing as muscle memory in the way people want it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, muscles don't have the capacity to store memory, but you've got neural patterns and you train your brain to do certain things. And then when you forget that you're thinking about the initial technical, oh, I'm going to pick up my phone, I'm going to reach for it. And then you just do it. You go, oh, that must be muscle memory. But it's a neural pattern. Well, the um, muscles don't store memories, but actually emotions stored within the fascia. Right. That's why you see people go and get like myofascial release and all of a sudden, you know, things come to the surface crying. Sure. Uh, Dr. Bueller, who does uh, the AMIT tech, um, AMIT, uh, activated muscle integration technique out of Caseville, Utah. That's the base of his whole work is actually working through the fascia to help, you know, people. Fascia's got some crazy shit in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's blows my mind whenever I look at any of the fascial research, but um, I think people get stuck within patterns. And I mean, I'm sure you've noticed, known people that tend to be very negative. They're negative about everything, you know, the, the chicken little type of mm-hmm. individuals. And I think it becomes, fear becomes almost a, um, like a, a thin, a hard candy shell for them to hide into. And uh, I tend to not want to be around people that are extremely fearful or more importantly, the people that are constantly kind of weighing what could happen or what, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen. The, the, What's interesting is through your mentoring, your family, your coaches, uh, you're a big guy and a good athlete, your pro sports background, and then the discipline to show up every day, build your business, you're wired a certain way. And the if we could eradicate fear on the planet, like everything would change. Yeah. So my no fear program spelled K-N-O-W for people who are listening to this and not watching this. Uh, I don't believe in no fear, and and uh, and I had every one of their shirts. I, you know, I make the joke all the time. I had every one of those no fear shirts because I wanted it to do something for me. I was one of those guys where if you knew what I was thinking, John, you wouldn't like me. Mm-hmm. But I would never say I'm really scared here. I would always show up, but I was scared my whole life, which is why this is very personal to me. I was a very high level skier. I was an excellent wrestler. I played every single sport, but I never could hit flow state and repeat it. I could never, I never got on a podium. So I'm one of the best skiers uh, in Canada growing up and I would wipe out every race. So people go, oh, self-sabotage. I go, but I showed up and I tried hard. I, if you asked me, do you think you could win? I'd go, yeah, but something would happen when I'd go to perform. Was it uh, like a mismanagement of emotion? Like you couldn't like I, this happens all the time in the NFL. Well, I mean, you have individuals that come in that have all the talent in the world, big and strong, fast. I mean, they move great in practice. Um, you know, they look like they're going to be future hall of famers. All of a sudden you go to Sunday, you get in front of a hundred thousand people, you put your game unis on, you're walking out the tunnel to hear, you know, the crowd roar. And as you peek out there, all of a sudden I watch those guys go. Shh. Yep. For me, uh, I would stand there. And as soon as they called my name, I would run as fast as I could to almost the point of like wiping out to try to get on the field. And people always ask me, why'd you run so fast on the field? And I'm like, because I was trying to get into the fight as quick as possible. Mm. I remember seeing Mike Tyson sprinting out of the locker room mm. to get into the fight. He didn't want to you know, take the long walk. He just like, let's get this going. If we're going to fucking do it, let's do it. Did you know, let me, let me interrupt you, that Tyson used to throw up and cry before his fights? I learned that later. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing because 
I mean, during his heyday, he was ferocious and scary, right? No socks, yeah. just the shoes on, no top, run out yep. to the ring. Yeah, just the, uh, the cut in yeah. the towel. Dropping people, dropping people like massive men, had, had welterweight speed as a heavyweight, just a freak, a scary man. Imagine if we didn't know who he was, John, and we're... And I got an underground pass. I know somebody at, at the fights and I go, hey, let's speak our head in this changing room. And we go in here. Oh, this is Mike Tyson. Who's he? And I don't know. And we open the door and then we see the guy looks up and he's got tears coming down his eyes. I go, you want to bet on this guy? You go, Fuck no. Sure. Right. Uh, and George St. Pierre recently came out with uh, talking about fear. And I got this clip that we show in, in all our presentations now where I go, like, here's, like, one of the winningest, badass yeah. guys in the world. And he says, look, the scariest day of my life is every day I had to fight. I hated it, I hated it, I dreaded it. He says, I'm not afraid to talk about fear, and I was afraid. What I'm getting at is all these people learned how to manage their fear. And so, you know, when you said, hey, I don't, I don't want to be around that, because it's contagious. I always tell people fear is contagious. Sure. But so is courage. Yeah. The trick is... And so what my thing is, is I'm not like a guy who came up with a cool acronym who went, I can make some bucks on this. I have lived with fear my whole life and still do as a parent. My kid's going to be okay. Why is my daughter not home right now? Uh, I got to fly in another, I got to get on another flight. Shit. I I hope the, I hope the pilot's okay. I I don't think you can live your life worrying about things that you can't control. Um, I learned long ago that the only thing that I can worry about is what's in you know, within right my domain, you, like, like, like yeah. what I can touch. Uh, if I'm driving on the highway, um, you know, there's no way for me to put myself in a position. If this guy's had a few drinks, all of a sudden he stares off and hidden, and it doesn't do anything for me to uh, to, sure. to, to be fearful about it. Um, so, so as, a, as an NFL player, uh, I could only control what was within the confines of what I could touch. I mean, if I could touch this guy, I can help him, I can help him, and what happens within it. And then my preparation, which was both physical and mental. And really, I think it, um, after thinking more and more on this, it was actually the physical preparation that gave me confidence. Like the mental stuff was always fairly easy. I was always fairly mm-hmm. intelligent, could pick stuff up, but it was actually the physical training and the crucible of that that gave me enough confidence to realize that whatever gets thrown at me, I have a certain set of skills that will allow me to be successful. I just have to be able to aim myself in that direction and fucking go 100 miles an hour. So, so that, so I would describe you as like the 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 unicorn in in that event. So, for example, I was a really good athlete with anything, but I'd be up at bats, going, "Don't strike out and let the team down." I was worried about. I knew I belonged there. I knew I had talent, but I was worried about the coach and the team. And I don't. I have no idea that was something in in the upbringing. Wow. Um, I would be at the top of the hill getting ready, getting ready to ski. And it would surprise me when I would catch a tip on a gate and wipe out. I mean, I, I expect spectacular wipeouts. One that, uh, where I, I fell so hard, I broke a helmet on a downhill race, uh, ended up in the hospital unconscious. I mean, just like insane. I would go, I'd go after it, but I couldn't stay in. It'd be like, the guy who's running, you know, who outruns the football and you're going, dude, you ran too fast. You need to, you need to find the balance of speed and precision and accuracy and timing. There's like a, a whole bunch of, of, of computations going on. When I would get an adrenaline dump, so I'd be at the top of the hill above a ski line. No trees are there. The wind is howling and I'm sweating. 
and my heart's pounding and my hands are wet inside gloves. You know the scene in Dumb and Dumber when they're on the motorcycle yeah, yeah. and they're frozen? <laughs> I mean, that's what it's like. If I had been crying, my tears would have been right. So if I had been Tyson, I'd had puke on my face and tears on my... And, uh, but here's what was going on with me. I was thinking, if I'm so good, how come I'm so scared? Why, like no one had ever told me this change in physiology is your adrenaline. This change in physiology is what the body sometimes does before something really important to you or something dangerous that you know you're going to do. So in essence, fear is a superpower. Fear can be a superpower if you turn it into fuel. Mm -hmm. So you, what you said is very astute. It's like, why worry about the future? Why worry about yeah. stuff you can't control? So the trick is, that's why I said the our, our program, what we, what we try to do is help people improve their self-awareness because self-awareness can change critical thinking. So the person that goes, I'm worried about those drivers, the system, our system says, you can't worry about the driver, you need to worry about your driving. Sure. Do you know how to drive? Do you, yeah. Are you taking precautions? Are you uh, diffusing your vision? Are you on your phone, yeah. you know, looking in the mirror, putting makeup on? So it's that moment where I, I intercept the movie. So a, a neat metaphor for, for your listeners is, because you're the unicorn and you figure this out. Well, uh, um, so for me, as I'm listening to this, um, I always more had a fear of failure. Okay. Um, I had this like unconscious fear that somebody was out there doing more than me and I would meet that person and they would best me because they had worked hard. Mm -hmm. And that was the, you know, 5 a.m. kick in the pants every single day for me to go train and do all the stuff is the thought that somebody out there might be doing more. Um, so that's fascinating. Two things, because uh, I remember a Tyson interview, speaking of interview, uh, uh, Tyson, where uh, he's up, it's five in the morning. He's out running in the winter, up in the Catskills. He's got the uh, the camera guys on the back of a flatbed. They got a camera on, and they're and he's running. And the guy says something to the effect of, "Mike, it's five in the morning. This is an ungodly hour to run. Meaning, why don't you run at six in the morning or seven in the morning?" And he says to the guy, "Like, why are you running at this ungodly hour, five in the morning?" And he smiles and says, "Because I know my opponent's still asleep." Yeah. And so you use that fear to spur you on, to turn you into a better athlete. Yeah. That is also the connection that you made, that you're doing things that other people don't want to do. That creates, that discipline creates a resiliency, like a, like a, a resiliency in events. You, you, only, you only create resiliency after shit. You yeah. can't pre-build your resiliency. But because you were doing stuff where you were imagining a more formidable opponent doing something more, you're actually building that in advance so that if somebody hit you or, or caught you on a tackle or that opportunity was there, you went, I know how fast I am. I know how strong I am. Yeah, and, and um, even people get into situations where, you know, oh, like, what if this guy punches me? I've been hit a million times, and I've taken a lot of punches. And unless that individual is a highly trained individual who has a very unique skill set that puts him in, like, the top 1%, there's a good chance that he's not going to knock Kind of like out. a Liam Nelson. Type, uh, well, or, but, you know, like, let's say you're in a bar and, you know, I don't know, um, fucking, uh, I don't know, like uh, professional fighters in there. You know, you, you look over and the dude's got totally cauliflowered ears and you're like, uh, that guy's probably pretty switched on. Um, you know, I know I could probably take a few of these hits. Uh, so, uh, whereas people get in these nervous situations and um, uh, we were talking a little bit about it about two or three months ago, I was approached from one of the local BJJ guys here, um, uh, Shandi Ribeiro. 
who's from Six Blades to help uh, start working with his young fighters. So I started training these guys three, four days a week. And then I thought it was kind of a little disingenuous that they were doing my training, but I wasn't doing theirs. So I started going up and doing some BJJ stuff with them, which is kind of ironic because uh, about a year ago, I actually, we had Craig Douglas and Jeff Gonzalez on the podcast and Craig was like, hey, you should come to one of my courses. I was like, great, let's do it. So about two days before the course, he calls me and goes, hey, I'm having a course this weekend. Do you want to come? And I was like, uh, how long is it? He's like, ah, it's uh, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. It's like 30 hours. I'm like, fuck, um, sure, I'll do it. What do I need? 200 rounds, a pistol, a cup, and a mouthpiece. I'm like, all right, so I'll show up. And it was... Uh, Eye-opening. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, we had an incredible time. In terms of one-on-one fighting on my feet, I think um, I'm more than switched on. Where I really struggled was on my back. Mm-hmm. There was a big dude there. It was one of the starting strength guys. Nick is six foot, 300 plus pounds. Um, it put <laughs> me on my back, you know, put him in basically side control, gave us pistols, and he shot me here and here with the Sims. I still got the scars. And I realized I have zero defense on the ground just because as an offensive lineman within my sport, mm. the last place you ever want to be is on the ground. And if I'm on the ground and a dude's on top of me on my back, everything has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the number one, um, I'm sure you remember, um, you know, back in the 80s, you know, before the Gracie thing got real big, the number one rule of in- involvement in any form of street fight is you don't go to the ground mm-hmm. because, you know, the minute you go to the ground, you can get kicked. I mean, that's when bad shit happens. So in this environment to start me there really exposed a weakness for me. And then this popped up and I realized, hey, if I'm going to progress, I sure. have to literally go into the darkness and potentially go in and do this. So I've been going doing that a bunch of Good days. for ago. you, man. Yeah. It, it's, it's, and it's scary how much these little guys can weigh when they know how to uh, yeah. relax into the situation. Uh, yeah. The, it's um, like, how much do you weigh? Oh, yeah. Especially when you're laying on your ribs. And it's been um, just extremely helpful for me in terms of like the technique and that. But also, um, I don't have any fear of tapping out. I don't have mm-hmm. any fear of getting hurt. Um, you know, my skill set. Uh, Shandy's pretty funny. He's like, it's like you're a video game and you have like a superpower button. He's like, stop using your superpower mm-hmm. button because I can always use speed and strength and just sure. fucking get out of shit. And um, it's been pretty interesting. But as we were kind of going through this and people were asking me a little bit about my own training, uh, I started martial arts when I was six. So my older brother got beat up by a local bully. My dad wasn't a fighter. Took my older brother down to this local dojo, Japanese dude, Shotokan. Mm-hmm. And he started training there. And within about three or four weeks, my dad just took my other brother and I. And we did that for four or five years. And nice. uh, we pretty much it was old school um the dojo was like hardwood like this no mats you kneeled the entire time you know shin hops i mean the dude had a you know the bamboo boken stick he'd walk around and crack us with (laughs) old japanese only spoken japanese and uh, that was you know what we did almost every single day crazy so it wasn't until i think uh, i was 10 years old and there was an older kid that you know tried to pick a fight with me and i remember he pushed me and i remember i had a backpack on and just like tightened my straps Mm. and ended up smashing him and when I hit him, I saw him like break into tears and he started getting this like emotional crying. And I was completely, you know, stone faced because we had been in so many fights. We had rehearsed this so many times. It was so natural mm-hmm. that it just felt like this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing, you know, going and playing the NFL that like, I mean, the fighting never was an emotional thing. It never scared me. I never was worried about getting hurt or, you know, this guy would best me. And if it happened, I knew I could get my way out of it. So yeah. I think it was from such a young age that the fighting and then even going and picking this up, somebody asked me, are you nervous? I'm like, not really. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I get hurt. I mean, shit, I played 17 well, weeks well, with a broken yeah. leg in the NFL. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? You have a, a very different upbringing than a lot of people. 
and uh, um, that's a neat thing. Like and you said it right when we started the talk that there are guys that would were maybe better talent than you. They could guys faster, stronger, but he couldn't handle the hundred thousand people. He couldn't handle the pressure of that game day. And I, I wrote something about this uh, several years ago about fear that on game day you can't be a different athlete. It's all mindset on game day. Yeah. You can't. And the same thing goes for a fight. The same thing goes for everything. The moment of truth, you need to step up, and it's all, it's all going to be psychological shit because the skill sets are as developed as they can be on that given day. Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody ever rises to the occasion. I, I never saw anybody who was average within practice all of a sudden put the game unis on, run out there, and turn into fucking Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the SEALs talk about nobody ever rises to the occasion. They just fall to the level of their training. It's true. You know, the person that you are, um, you know, within the confines of training, the things that you do every day, that becomes the norm. And then all that happens is you go out there, the competition gets turned up a little bit, and you just rise to the occasion. Um, you know, it, like the skill is always there. It's just, you know, the speed get turned mm-hmm. up in the NFL between practice and game day. And all you do is you just crank it up a little bit of a notch. It's not as if all of a sudden I have to go leaps and bounds. It's always there. You're just going 80, 90%, and then you just go to 100 or a little yeah, bit more. yeah. But uh, the biggest one for me was um, I always had like a weird ability to kind of tune shit out. Uh, I remember getting into my stance, hearing, and I knew the crowd was roaring, but never heard them. Everything was really, really silent. Things seemed to happen in slow motion, and I just never really got distracted by stuff. Um, so those are like, like literally, I've said this a couple of times. Like you know, I would describe you if I was if I was explaining y- your recall to another audience, I go. John's a fucking unicorn. This doesn't happen to a lot of people. So you, auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, tacky psyche is a big fancy word yep. for things going into slow motion. Uh, that that would happen to you more frequently than other people gave you that was that was more of you being able to step into a flow state where you're not worrying about somebody yelling at you. I remember somebody just uh, sent me. I was I think on. Uh, 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 the color commentary for UFC 10, uh, Ultimate Ultimate, when Tank Abbott fought um, Dude, Don I love, Fry. I, first of all, huge Don Fry fan. Yeah. Anybody with that mustache fucking yeah, rocks. Yeah. But the old UFC stuff, I watch it constantly. So, dude, it. I don't know. So, a friend of mine from Montreal, where I used to live, he said, Hey, weren't you in that? What was it? I said, I don't remember. So, he pulls it up on the app and he watches it. He said, and his guy trained with me for years. He says, I've never seen you nervous. You were nervous there. And I said, well, I, they hired me when SCG owned the UFC. Mm-hmm. They flew me to New York, and I, I talked to the producers and uh, Joe Silva and all these guys, and they wanted to bring me in as a guy to sit beside Jeff Blatnick to talk about the emotional, psychological side of stuff and just have that counterbalance from... Yeah, like a little color commentary. Yeah. And I was going to, but the day of the event, they said, Hey, we don't want that. We want you to interview the fighters. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's something you hired for me for, but like, I don't, like, I don't do that stuff. So now they had me, and I make this joke, I was so bad, they hired Joe Rogan. Like, <laughs> like, like I, I was so nervous, but why, why was I nervous? As one is, it was like, it was like, they gave me something that I had no experience about doing and I had no interest in doing, sure. but I was there and, uh, and they had for live TV, you have an earpiece in and the producer's talking to you, you know, this. Sure. I'd never done that. No rehearsal, no nothing. So I'm literally like backstage talking to Don Fry 
and the producer's going, ask him what his strategy is. And I'm like, <laughs> like, like, let me talk to the guy. Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this. It was all over the place. Uh, and it was, and it was nuts. And I use that example only because, uh, like I coach people on public speaking, number one fear in the world, public speaking, yeah. not getting dragged to a secondary crime scene and tortured public speaking. Sure. So someone will say to me, Hey, uh, can you help me with my public speaking? I go, yeah. Okay. What's the problem? They go, I'm afraid of public speaking. I go, you seem to be doing okay. They go, ha, huh, I'm just talking to you one-on-one. -on -one. It's when it's uh, like, like a group. I go, okay, tell me about your family. Oh, I got a wife, I got two kids. So do you text them? You know, can you cut my food for me? I'm afraid of knives. Pass me the, they look at me. I go, do you talk to your family? They go, yeah, you're not afraid? They're like, no. I go, but I thought you said you're afraid of public speaking. They go, listen, Mr. Blower, I know you're trying to be funny here, but I'm afraid of public speaking. And what I explained to them is you're afraid of speaking in public to people you don't know and you're afraid of one person in the audience and what they might think of you. There's somebody important in the audience. You've assigned some sort of importance to this event and now you're focusing on that as opposed to your speech. You have the skills, you wrote a speech, you have a message, you want to say something, just go do that. And if you, that's the critical thinking part where I realize again, the false expectations appearing real. I'm visualizing something in the future that's debilitating me right now. That's the self-awareness piece. Now, somehow, from your family, from your Shotokan instructor, from all the sports you played, from the coaching and all of that, you have very, very quickly, almost even at an unconscious level, John, gone, I mean, you might not even realize the, the switch, but if you see uh, a problem, your brain immediately goes to the solution or goes to the philosophical i'll deal with the problem if it happens yeah. and and there's just like there are other pro athletes that lost their shit on sunday there's millions of people who are, are there are many more millions of people who could never make it to sunday that need this idea of like how do i manage fear if if this was a bottle of courage the primary ingredient would be fear yeah, um could it really come down to being trained versus untrained? I, I've, I've always had this sneaking suspicion that if you enter into something that's some form of physical training that pushes you farther than you think you could and you do it consistently, you eventually develop like a set of, I guess it's uh, like a confidence within yourself. Um, I, I always thought this within like, um, you know, NFL practice, right? So we go out there and you're pretty much playing against some of the best dudes in the world every day in practice. And, uh, you know, you're in these situations and then all of a sudden you go out there and you've already done this against really high skilled individuals. Now you might f face a guy who's better or worse by a few degrees. You know, it felt like every week I was going against, um, some future hall of famer or pro, uh, nothing really changed. You know, the speed changes obviously. Uh, but it's not as if all of a sudden I got to develop a new technique. I mean, I watch film. I know exactly what the guy's move is. I've watched other people like me handle this individual. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, I have a, like a framework and a rubric to work upon. Um, and all of these things end up developing a level of confidence. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm overly confident. You're still nervous as shit because, you know, you still have to right. do this. But you've developed almost a, a skill set that allows you to go out and be successful. And then all you have to do is put yourself in the situation, get out of your own fucking way, and just go 100 but, miles but an But that's hour. the trick. So the answer is yes and no. Because 
you know, we've seen like talented boxers, like everyone who fought Mike Tyson was one of the best in the world. Yeah. But you, if you watch their eyes and their movement, they didn't look like one of the best in the world. They weren't. Well, I personally believe that Tyson beat every one of those competitors or every one of his opponents other than maybe one or two uh, before he ever stepped in the right. ring. I mean, but those they, guys but, beat. But they beat themselves. So when Hollyfield dropped him, not Hollyfield. Uh, was it Buster Douglas? Uh, yeah, when Doug, uh, Douglas dropped him, you know, and this is an interesting thing in how, like, when I teach self-defense, part of our training is I ask, what will cost you if you don't fight back? Everything. Right, could. Could be everything. And then what I call the three Ps, personal, passion, and present. Who is the most important person in your life that th- their existence and future could be compromised if something really bad happens to you? And Buster Douglas's mom passed away just before that. I think it was like the night before. Yeah. yeah. And he decided to still fight. And he, in his mind, he dedicated yeah. the fight. So it was an interesting thing. There's another, and remind me to come back uh, to that. Oh, no, I, I have a whole bunch of boxing yeah, yeah. questions. We're going to okay. talk okay. about boxing nice. and MMA. Sweet. Like, I have oh, a sweet. whole sheet on that. So so the whole thing with, with, with that is Buster Douglas got over his fear, if he had any, and went, I'm going to do this for my mom. She's. I'm going to become the world champion and fuck Mike Tyson, and and he went at him and it was interesting just in terms of movement. In the uh, when was this heyday? The 90s or 2000? I don't even remember. Uh, Tyson. Oh, it was the 80s. It, it was 80s. Yeah, it, yeah, it was 80s and 90s. So you remember his TikTok, right? Oh, right. Too. Uh, so 100. Somebody asked me, "How do he beat Mike Tyson?" And uh, like I'm, I am. Uh, very, very scientific and analytical uh, do stuff. Like I, I'm not taking uh, credit for Mir's knockout of Noguera, but I worked with Frank Mir the week before Noguera, and it was the first time Noguera got knocked out. Did and I ever tell you that we walked into a strip club in Vegas and Frank Mir was the doorman? No. I ever told but you But I know he, he worked yeah, at... Yeah, he was, uh, uh, um, it was Crazy Horse. Or no, it was yeah, Crazy Horse no. or... Um, it was that... Um, Rhino. Yeah, Spearmint Rhino. Yeah, yeah the Rhino. Yeah. Uh, we walked, I don't know what you're talking about. I well, I, well, I'll tell you. I, we went um, and walked in, and you know, Frank Mears fucking got that fucking head and that right. jaw. And, I mean, he was fighting in a couple weeks. Yeah. And I remember walking in and like, holy shit, that's fucking Frank Mears. Yeah. I mean, and, and he even made a joke because, you, know, well, you know, obviously NFL players, right? And he's like, hey, I'm not going to have any trouble with the other guys. I'm like... No, no, sir. Not at all, Mr. Mir. And, <laughs> right. he, and then he kind of looked at me and I was like, I, I'm a fight fan. I know exactly yeah, who you are. He's a big dude. And, yeah. And uh, fucking savage. So so I reverse engineered some stuff looking at Noguera. And that's what we do is we go, look, this is a, a little bit kind of like what you say. If, if I've run through my mind, I've done mental rehearsals and physical rehearsals. I've got film and people don't realize from self-defense and it's one of the things that's really wrong my opinion, what do I know? I've only been studying violence, fear, and aggression for 40 years. The way people are taught self-defense is it's like saying, I'm going to teach you to throw, I'm going to teach you to catch, and you can play in the NFL. And you're going, like, like those techniques are the least important part if you don't have all the shit together, the mm-hmm. strategy, the toughness, the endurance, the mindset. And um, so Mir ended up knocking out Noguera in there and... Uh, so I can see things right away, and I go, look, I can't beat these guys, but I know what they need to do to beat them. Just my brain can figure that shit out. So it was the same thing in the 80s. Somebody said to me, how do you beat a guy like Tyson? He's so fast, he's so deceptive. His head movement is so crazy. And I said, 
if somebody would just punch him in the sternum, they would rock him and set up the right because they're aiming for his head because he was a short heavyweight. Sure. And so he's doing he's doing this movement so quickly, it's so erratic. If I'm punching, if I'm punching at the head and the head is moving, it's a small, small weapon, small target. Sure. I go punch the sternum, the sternum's not moving. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and watch the Buster Douglas fight, watch what he does. He's jabbing into the the top of the sternum here and it's stopping Tyson and setting him up for the right. So it, it's neat at that level when you talk about is it all about the training other people might have seen that but if you go in there so worried about Tyson I don't know if you remember this from the the, the course you did when I you came to the one with, with Jeff there's a line I share in every course about intimidation and it's the psychology of intimidation is this it's when I'm visualizing what my opponent can do to me instead of what I must do to my opponent. Mm -hmm. And when you make that switch, so much of the fear just eradicates. Um, Dan Millman, Way the Peaceful Warrior author, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite quotes, uh, he said, when you face just one opponent and you doubt yourself, you're outnumbered. Genius, right? Because a lot of times you stand up and you go, am I ready? Well, you know. like So this is what I go back to. If you've done the body of work, this is what always was confusing for me um, with uh, NFL players. I'll give you a little antidote. Um, we were going into play in the playoffs, and our left tackle, who was in the, in the Hall of Fame, I mean, one of the best dudes to ever do the job, hurts his back, can't play. So they put a young guy in for him, and, you know, he's playing all week, and we're playing against Dwight Freeney, whose, you know, nickname is Fright Night for a reason because <laughs> he's like a fucking nightmare for people. Uh, that guy goes in and had so much fear about what could happen. And I mean, like we prepped him, we did everything. All you got to do is this. I mean, just, you know, what you do is when a guy's in a bad situation, when obviously he's outmatched and not, you know, he's filling in for a dude, you simplify things, just go vertical. We're going to help. Don't worry. It's like, and we're going to basically make you safe. And we're going in there. Everything's fine. You got it. You got it. We're good. So we come in from, uh, from pregame, we're getting ready to go out the tunnel and I'm standing right there and he turns to me and goes, uh, Dwight Freeney's just a man, right? Like, how good could he really be? And you remember that scene in Braveheart when they're going about to go out there and the dude pisses himself and he just takes a step back? Mm. Same thing happened. I just took a step back and I realized it's going to be a bad day for this guy. If you're not anything other than like, I'm going to go fucking make the Hall of Fame. I'm mm-hmm. going to go get my big contract. Like this motherfucker, like success runs right through his chest. Mm. And um, it ended up getting real bad for him. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up losing. The guy had a terrible game. I mean, he ended up going on playing longer and redeeming himself, but it was a, it was a bad moment. And I never had that moment of fear in, ever in my life. Unicorn. Uh, and we that, hate you. Well, but well, <laughs> what, what I really believe happened is at that moment, he knew deep down that he hadn't done the work, mm. you know, n- not just that week, but leading up to that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that if you've done the film study, you've done the work, you've prepared, you've trained, uh, as hard as you can, even imagining other people to train hard when they're the, you know, which is totally an illusion. You know, you don't know how fucking hard somebody's going. You right. imagine what they're going to do. Um, and you've done all of those things. When you're put in this opportunity to be successful, you have no choice other than to be successful. Right. Uh, when I was, I think it was in my second year, we went to go play the New York Giants and they had a guy named Keith Hamilton who was a fucking monster. He had a move where he was he would stand straight up. He was like six 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 seven three hundred pounds. He would stand straight up and he would let you punch him. Nobody ever gives you the chest mm. because his hands were so big that he would grab your wrists, mm. lift them straight up, and then throw you back. And we called it the forklift. So 
this guy uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. Will never make the Hall of Fame because he was uh, like such a bully mm. that you know turns into a political thing. And this guy was an absolute beast. Uh, he did it to me. He got me in this forklift, and we had a hellacious battle. After the game, I ripped his picture out of the program and I put it in my wallet. Mm. And every time I opened my wallet for the next year, I had to look at his face. And like I built within a rage and everything became focused on beating this individual, whether it be training, whether it be film study, everything came down to this one individual as the crux for my so this success. Is, yeah, this and, is fascinating. Uh, and uh, when I went out to go play against him, oh, dude, all of that rage fucking focused, focused into yeah. him. And, I, and when he went for that forklift, I hit him. I mean, it was the heavyweight fist fight that I always wanted. Right. And I always felt that if you want to be considered great, you have to have somebody good to go against. Mm -hmm. You have to have that person. And I always think like I made my bones as a young guy playing against that individual. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's, but that's amazing. That's so my company mostly trains trainers and what I try to instill in them, I go, I don't care if you're doing Thai boxing, MMA, jujitsu, or if you're a firearms coach, if you're a force on force coach, we work with companies, with business people. I go, if, if somebody is not performing at what you intuit as their potential, the answer is something about the psychology of fear. Really simple. And if you're a parent and your kid is, is having rest, struggling with math or sports, you can smack him and go, you know, I mean, we grew up in an era where it's like, hey, uh, if you come home with a black eye and you don't fight back the bully, like I'm going to beat you worse than, than oh, the bully yeah. ever will. Right. That doesn't go on anymore. So that in most, in most areas, well, did, uh, did that fight that I got into where I told you, I, I did my, um, backpack, backpack straps yeah. and hit the kid. We ended up getting pulled in the office. They called our parents and my mom came storming in and she walked in and she's like, what happened? And I told her and she's like, uh, you know, like, uh, basically I was like, I oh, hit him. She goes, uh, you know, like, uh, stay here goes in fucking yells at the teacher or the principal forever for bothering her time comes out and we get in the car and she's like just remember um if you fight you have to win or it was basically something the effect of like if you fight you better win because i don't like losers and you can't come home if you lose <laughs> nice and uh it was a pretty interesting moment but like it was true i mean yeah. i i just always looked at it like um you know i wasn't scared to fight so I, so I imagine nervous somebody somebody born in the last 10 15 20 years <sighs> Dealing with bullying or dealing with stress now. Uh, this is this is part of the reason that I ended up uh, kind of going, um, kind of getting pulled into this jujitsu thing a little bit was actually for my daughters. Mm. Um, I had so many fights. I mean, because I had two older brothers, and you know, we battled in the neighborhood. But also within the dojo, we had so many of these different altercations or you know just fucking training environment. Right. That by the time I was met on the street with somebody, it wasn't a big thing. And I realized for my daughters, same thing, you know, they're, they're the oldest, they don't have older brothers, that the first time they're in a stressful situation where somebody puts their hands on them or something goes down, I don't want that to be the first time right. they've ever been exposed to it. So, I mean, the, in terms of the jujitsu, what I liked a little bit better than the boxing and some of the other martial arts is the actual physical contact. You get used to people being on top of you or, or involved or grabbing you in different ways. Mm -hmm. And you know, hopefully you which is exposed. which is unfortunately more likely in a an attack on a female. Yeah, the, you know, it's not as if somebody's going to punch him at distance. They're probably right. going to grab him in close and hold him tight. Right. Uh, or you know, try to overpower them. I don't want that 
situation to be the first time that that happens. Sure. I want them to be comfortable enough to be like, hey, man, I've been in this situation. I know how to react. And even though this guy might be stronger than me, at least I'm not going to fucking lose my mind or freak out. So I, like that piece alone was what kind of pushed me within that jujitsu right. thing. Nice. That's good. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's so important. So like in the and you probably know this, but the, the terminology of uh, in scenario training is stress inoculation, create these adaptations in advance. And what a lot of people don't realize is is the at, at some level you're focusing on the movements and the techniques and the tactics. But the repetition is is helping the mind make decisions in advance. So what we want to do is improve our perception speed so that our reaction time is always faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, but what I noticed was, and this is you know, I mean the whole no fear division of my company happened after I developed Spear, after I uh, developed High Gear, where I started realizing. You know, only the people who really can control their fear are actually performing closer to what the training, when you talk about, you know, is this untrained versus just trained? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of trained people who freeze. There are a lot of trained people who shoot high, shoot low, don't shoot. There's a very famous book written called The Fog of War, which is like, I think, from World War II era. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, this isn't, you know, if you remember in... uh, in Gates of Fire, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of one of uh, one of the great moments in there. I, I don't know if it's in the, if if it was in in the movie version of, of stuff, but in the book, yep. we talk about um, you know the guys are sitting around worrying about the uh, the uh, opposing army and their arrows, and one of the guys says something. You know, when they lose all their arrows, it's there's so many come at them, it blocks the sun out. It's like you're, you know, you can't. And they were all scared about it. And Leonidas hears this and he goes, then we'll fight in the dark. You know, some, yeah. Yeah, some yeah, line. I think it's a, we'll fight in the shade. We'll fight in the shade. Yeah. You know, but the idea is like, like these are all Spartans. But the, the, me- the metaphor there for me is there were Spartans who were afraid. And then there was Leonidas who said, so we'll fight in the shade. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the thing. Like one of the most powerful lines that I remind people is always, you can't be brave if you're not afraid. There is no bravery if there's no fear first. If I ask you to do something, I had this, uh, this seminar I was doing in Orlando a couple of years ago. We had about 70, 75 people in the class. One guy's a professional firefighter, introduced himself early. I've been following along. I brought my son to this, and we're doing our no fear workshop. And I said, I'm going to ask a question a little bit later that you'll be able to answer yes to. Don't answer yes. So I asked the group after going through the because again what I'm teaching people is not that there's a place where you get to so you're so well trained that you have no fear so if I asked you were you afraid before games you would say semantically no I'm ready to go but if you had any change in physiology if you if your sleep changed a little bit if you ate differently if you had to pee extra times if you had anxiety and you're like but what you were doing is you were turning it into fuel you're like here we go this is good a lot of some people don't so i didn't as a kid i was like what are these butterflies no one ever said this is okay go with it see yeah. what happens and um so here i am in orlando we go through the workshop i go i got a question for you courageous bystander courageous operative word bystander there's no you have no skin in the game here it's like oh shit this building's on fire there's a car accident how many of you know if this building caught on fire that you would run in and save the cat, save the dog, save someone's grandma. 
I, I said, don't answer metaphorically and don't answer philosophically. You know right now. And a woman puts her hand up halfway. She goes, I'd like to think I've got a much better chance now that I can think about the idea that I need to manage fear. I'm not going to be without fear. Like I get a diploma. I don't have fear anymore. And uh, I said, okay, um, that's good. That's fair. Does anybody here know for sure they would run into a building if it was on fire? And that was his cue. And he puts his hand up like this. And I turned to him. I go, that's pretty arrogant, cocky of you to know that you would run into a burning building. How can you be so sure? And he goes, because I'm a firefighter. So this connects what you were talking about is if I, if I can get somebody to manage their fear and they have no skill, that's another hurdle. Now, if you're trained, but what this guy doesn't remember is when his first day at the fire academy, when they said you're going to run into this building, it's very important that you don't stop here. Don't touch this flame, even though it's not real. It's real, right? Yeah. Um, that there was fear there and you adapt to it if you do the training properly. So you're 100% spot on 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 can you, you know that the i think it's a spartan maxim training should be like a bloodless battle so the battle's just like bloody training sure can you replicate what you believe you're going to face i used to tell my fighters because it was in the 80s when I, I ran my gyms uh tyson was you know dropping everybody it was the Hagler hearns era uh, it was sugar ray leonard uh and we'll we'll get into some of the fight stuff but the most impactful thing i've ever seen uh was uh Tommy Hearns versus Marvin Marvis Hagler. It's scary. Did you hold your breath too? Uh, we watched it. And from that moment on, and I was doing martial arts at the time, I thought kicking was stupid. And that actually pushed me into boxing. Mm. The problem was there was no boxing place I could ride my bike to. So I ended up uh, reaching out to a kickboxing, uh, John Barrett Kickboxing Academy mm. that had a ring and they had boxing classes. So that's when I got indoctrinated into boxing. And then I ended up getting a boxing coach when I got to high school. But that fight, I remember it. Like it was yesterday. Insane. Was, uh, these two guys, um, and I loved Hagler. I mean, since like, you know, the, the whole deal about him, like going out to the Cape and, uh, you know, it's really hard to get up and run to five in the morning when you wake up in silk sheets, I think was the quote. Mm. Um, but just an absolute monster. Those guys standing toe to toe, just throwing do you, bombs. Do you remember when he fought uh, Tony Simpson? So he was a, a, so Simpson idolized Hagler, couldn't believe he was fighting him. At the, the, weigh in the day before they're doing pictures they've done their little stare down then they turn and they yeah. face right um Simpson puts his hand on Hagler's shoulder for the picture and Hagler turns to him during the during this is on he goes get your hand off me right now or I'll knock you out here I will not wait for tomorrow and you see like Simpson go <laughs> and like I told people yeah. that was the fight right there yeah now here's an interesting thing I had a picture in my gym of Hagler and Hearns, an overhead shot. Now, was Hagler a scaredy cat? Sorry, was Hearns a scaredy cat? Would you say he's like a fearful fighter? No. No, right? The friggin' just insane power, knocked yeah. everyone out. Uh, made Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon look like a fatso, right? Wrist yeah. shredded. Yeah. I have a picture, and hopefully you'll appreciate this. I have a picture of the two of them. Hearns is throwing a left hook and it's literally like like those artificial intelligence thing now just the the striations in his body ripping a left hook man like this and Hearns Southpaw not Hearns Hearns is throwing the punch Hagler Southpaw 
is throwing a lead right hook inside of Hearn's lead left hook. Mm. They're spooning yeah. from overhead. And Hearn's first Hagler is like this, leaning. Uh, you could see leaning in here like this. Hearn's is doing this. In that moment, Hearns knew he was late. And what did his body and his mind do? He closed his eyes and turned his head. He had fear, and this is the most interesting thing about our research, is it doesn't matter if you're a world champion, the best in the world, a stimulus gets introduced to your nervous system where your psychological system goes, fuck. In that moment, he knew he was late, and that was actually the hook that set up the finish. Yeah. But it, it's gorgeous. But you see Hearns going, head turned. The front half of his body, John, is totally tactical. His face and his eyes and his head, primal, get away from danger. If I whip something at you here and it surprised you, your hand might come out, sure. but your head turns away. So in when, when I break down the stimulus to the physiological to the psychological effect, and this is the fun stuff of our research where I go, in that moment, your limbic system and amygdala are driving action. It's not executive function anymore. So it's a fascinating thing. So you could be super, super trained, and then all of a sudden, you got a thought that shouldn't be there, and that's, and that's the moment that that tackle hits you or you miss the, you know, you, you miss the catch or you're, you, just got, you just got distracted. Do you think fear has an IQ? Could you, mm. um, wow. when, when working with your fighters, um, let's say it's GSP or whoever you worked with, uh, is there a way to kind of assign like an IQ? Because uh, Craig Douglas made an interesting comment after uh, I took a seminar. He's like, you know, in terms of the ground fighting stuff, he goes, but your propensity and your, uh, your IQ for violence is so high that he's like, you put you in these situations and he's like, you don't really get rattled and you just fucking try to be a buzzsaw through it. He's like, you just your capacity for violence is really mm. high. And as I'm thinking about fear, I wonder if there's an IQ associated with it where you, you know, the smarter you are, the more aware you are of it and you realize how to manage it opposed to maybe people that take your course that have never thought about fear in terms of the, you know, whether it be a superpower or a disability, whatever, but they almost have an IQ and intelligence for fear. That's a great question. I, I don't, I, I can guess an answer like what I think. Well, that's what uh, I'm asking. Yeah, but I, but I mean, it's like it's something I want to think about a lot longer because it's a, it's it's a cool thing. I think I think you're, I think what what Craig said to you, and this is so funny uh, about him is we started chatting on Instagram recently, and I said, uh, "Hey man, I, d I dig your shit. I can't believe we've never met in all these years, you know." And he's and he said we have. He says I was in one of your classes like 20 years ago. He was. <laughs> I didn't even realize this, like, yeah. you know, but, uh, which made me feel really old. Um, the, uh, um, but that's an interesting, I love that. I think your fear management has an IQ, but fear is an independent force in our body. Um, uh, my, uh, I was a single dad raising my kid didn't know anything about it, had custody of my son at three months old. To put him to sleep, I would give him a bottle. I didn't know you don't give a bottle of milk with all the sugars in the milk to your kid. I wrecked his teeth mm. as a kid. And I start seeing this decay. I go to the dentist. He's four years old. They go, 
yeah, this, this needs to be fixed. He's, he's got to have an operation. Mm. Well, they don't like to put kids under until they're seven. I had to go to the hospital, sign a waiver where they said, look, if he doesn't have this, he's going to be fucked. He's got to have this operation, but this could happen. Like I wanted to throw up, man. I couldn't, I felt so guilty. I was angry at myself. Um, and what I did was I took him to the hospital the day before and I did a scenario with him and me. I went in, I, I pre-briefed, who, I said, I'm coming in tomorrow, here's his operation, I don't want him freaking out, and then I'm freaking out, and we walked through, we took him through, like the, the whole thing. So I did a run-through, and then the next day, I was nervous as shit, but I didn't, I didn't want, I know that fear is contagious, mm-hmm. so is courage. I wanted him, the stress that was going to be on his system, I wanted to be as low as possible, because I was calm. So literally in a 24-hour period, we went from, Hey, this is where we're playing. This is the auditorium. But tomorrow, there's going to be 100,000 people here. Visualize that now. Just like a lot of fighters like to get into the ring the day before and move around. I just got wicked goosebumps reliving reliving that. But I was scared shitless, man. Like choking back tears the day before. I can't believe I did this. I'm putting my son at this risk. Obviously, everything turned out okay. But we went in, and the next day, it was like, it was almost like you said, like, let's do this fast. We know what the routine is. Now we're doing it for real. Okay, I'll see you in a couple hours. Love you. Boom, out of there. Of course, I wanted to puke for two hours waiting. I, um, man, for things with my kids, uh, I have zero superpower. Um, you know, my, my son got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes about two years ago. Wow. And we have to manage that every day. And, like, I see what he goes through. And then uh, it was a couple months ago, um, my daughter ended up getting bit by a dog, got attacked by a oh, dog, wow. kind of fucked, her, fucked herself up, and we ended up having to go rescue her out of it. And like seeing that and like for all of the blood and violence and broken bones and everything that never even, mm-hmm. you know, fucking moved my heart rate uh, to see your children in these situations and to have that like that is by far much more difficult for me to deal with. Um, I, for some reason, like my own safety or more importantly, mm-hmm. any of the things that happened to me, like I have zero like it, it just doesn't register. Right. But like, you know, whether it be your wife or your kids or your loved ones, or your mom and yeah. dad. Whatever. And that's, and that's a great example of, you know, when I say stimulus gets introduced too quickly, executive function gets hijacked, your reactive brain, your limbic system, all of that starts to kick in. When you, when you understand that, that protocol, um, have you ever done an armors course? Um, I, not like officially like, but, okay. uh, but I mean, I like, I really think of, um, I've also, smart enough to realize that if I all of a sudden start showing fear or I get stressed out or I like have an emotion, um, you're one of them. Courage yeah. is 100% contagious yeah. that if I can stay calm and in, in, in stressful situations that I know, like maybe if I'm dying inside, um, my ability to like be calm and cool and collected. Facade, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can put up that facade just because that's yeah. the strength that people and, and need. That, and that's, that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge power. Uh, and, and a lot of people are, are good at that. One one of the things that that I keep pounding in, I'm tr- like this is part of my messaging. So the whole no fear part of my life and my business that I realize now, where my focus was on, okay, this is the spear system. This is a scenario. This is someone said to me, what is the most important course you do? I'm, they, I always surprise them. I go, it's the mindset, mm. because that's the only thing that can bite us in the ass. And so here, you you know, for, for however long we've been talking, 
I'm making these unicorn jokes and then I bring up something accidentally about my son yeah. and you go, holy shit, like that's the Achilles heel. Like, oh, and, but. Well, it, it's, it's because um, uh, I, I think somewhere along the line, I hijacked empathy, whether it, I turned mm-hmm. off that part of my brain, but uh, I did not have empathy and it actually was probably a superpower for me in terms of playing in that. Like mm-hmm. I didn't fear for other people. I didn't fear for their safety. I didn't fear for my own. Like that part just seemed to just turn off. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had kids Mm. and it wasn't until that all of a sudden I was given responsibility of these small humans to raise Mm. that all of a sudden it rekindled something within that empathy where now all of a sudden, um, you know, I realized that my, you know, like why, like, like, you know, I'm sure you, like, why are we here, right? Mm-hmm. Standard fucking question people ask all the time. I'm sure during COVID and lockdown, more people ask that question. Like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Um, you know, what's the mark that we make? And I always think that the only mark that we make is on those that are around us. Because mm-hmm. at some point, we're all going to die. Uh, and effectively, our lives, whatever they had meaning at that point ends and people go on. The only way that you live eternal is by influencing those around you to keep your memory alive. Um, you know, my dad passed away a couple of years ago. I think about him every single day, which in, in, in effect keeps him mm-hmm. constant. I talk to the kids about him. We still talk about him as this individual. And I think the day that nobody talks about you anymore, you effectively fade into anonymity. And that's, a, you know, that's your second death when there isn't mm-hmm. anybody around that remembers your name. So um, I looked at my kids and the influence I have. And more importantly, the, uh, you know, the role as my fa- as, as the father for them as being extremely impactful and not something I took lightly. You know, people father kids, walk out on them mm-hmm. and don't give a fuck about them. And I was like, dude, I, one, I will never leave my kids. And two, uh, I will always be the rocket which they can, you know, build upon. Nice. And uh, that's extremely important for me. And it almost rekindled and maybe it re-sparked or rewired something within my brain. But that empathy piece where now all of a sudden like to be connected within them was something that allowed me mm-hmm. to probably be more human. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, as I think about fear, um, part of my task is, uh, as, a, as a parent is to really to prepare them for the day that I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when my dad was sick, he was going through some chemo. Um, and my mom and I were like, took him. It was pretty awful. And so we were driving back and my mom's like, Hey, do you want to go see a movie? And I'm like, no, I don't want to fucking see a movie. But we ended up stopping in. And I think the movie we walked into was black Panther. And in there, uh, we walked in and it was the scene where he like goes to the spirit world and he sees his dad. Mm. And his dad's like, the role of the father is to prepare the son from when the father's not there anymore. Mm. And so we ended up leaving the movie theater. I thought a little bit about it. We went back. And, um, you know, as my dad's going through the mm. end of his life, I asked him, I'm like, how do you feel about this? And he's like, I, you know, I thought I would have had more time in this. And uh, he's like, but laying here, I'm not stressed about it because I know you guys are switched on. I know that you guys are all successful. You'll take care of your mom. There isn't anything like, I'm not worried that, you know, my kids are in jail. They're dipshits. They're drug addicts. They're fuckheads. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry. You guys are all switched on. You're all successful. You will figure out how to take care of everything. And as a dad, I felt like I did what I needed to do. And that was fucking huge for me. And I realized that's really the function. So that when you're, you're laying there ready to take your last breath, that, you know, the stress that did I do enough? Yes. Are my kids taken care of? Have I armed them to go out into the world and be successful? Was I the person I needed them to be? And more importantly, um, you know, am I able to take this journey on without fear of what I'm leaving behind? And uh, that really kind of molded me a little bit as a father and as an individual uh, to be, you know, the person that they need so that the day that I'm there, they're prepared for when I'm not there. That's amazing, man. That's uh 
I lost both my parents and did not have my mom recently last year, did not get a chance to have those conversations because of what was going on with everything here. Yeah, it's just but, fucking bullshit. Yeah. I mean, the, the uh, out of this imaginary fear that somehow we were going to be, you know, passing some deadly virus by, you know, communing with our families and missing our loved ones. Like, you can't get that shit back. Yeah. And I'm still fucking mad that they robbed that from people. So well, I'm fear, sorry. And, and fear, has, fear has been weaponized. I mean, it always has, but more so in the last couple of years. But that's a, I'll be thinking about that story a lot as a parent. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. No, it, uh, it fuels me in a lot of ways. And, yeah. I'm, you know, when I constantly am looking at stuff like, uh, you know, whatever it is, like, like you kind of add things. Like, let's say it's like a Christmas tree or your closet. You know, you're going to buy clothes next thing you know. You almost like look at all this shit you have in your closet. And you're like, what do I really need? Mm. And then you almost kind of pare that down. I think you have to do that every so often and realize like what's really important to you. Is it, you know, this uh, nicer car or this or all this other shit? Like on my dad's, um, you know, in those final days, uh, it, you know, it wasn't a single moment about, man, I wish I had another Rolex. I wish I drove a nicer Porsche. I wish I had more bitching mm. suits or I'd worked more. It was uh, all the things that we got to do as a family and all the memories we had. Mm-hmm. And I realized, like, all the material shit is fucking bullshit at the end of the day. Like, you can't take it with you. So, the, you know, the ancient Egyptians tried to do it. They couldn't do it. Nobody's right. going to take it. Uh, you know, in the age old, I don't want to be the richest man in the cemetery. I want to be the person with the most amount of memories. And more importantly, um, you know, the greatest probably receipt you have for your life is, you know, the people that stand up and give your eulogy at, mm-hmm. you know, your memorial, let's say. The amount of people that showed up. I mean, at my dad's, it was standing room only. You know, there were people trying to get in. He had, he had influenced wow. and worked and, and helped so many people that people were showed up to pay their respects. Pay their respect, and, yeah. you know, can you imagine you die and nobody shows up, mm-hmm. you know, this fucking asshole. So uh, that stuff became way more important to me. And I never really thought about the humanity of it or, you know, mm-hmm. being a father in this until you lose your own parents. Uh, my mom's still alive. Uh, she's she's going to live to be 200. People, nice. I, always, I always joke that people like her live for a real, real long time. Nice. She's too feisty to go. But... That's important for me. Like, who's the, you know, like, like, what are you, what are you portraying? Kind of like when um, we got into JITS, I got my daughter into it. And then she's like, dad, I, you know, am I going to do this? I'm like, fuck it, I'll do it with you. So Mm -hmm. I drive her up there and I do, um, you know, the classes, I get this. I mean, like, I'm 100%, like, whatever my kids want to do, if you need me to do it with you, I'll fucking jump into the fire with you. That's amazing. And, um, you know, and they're like, whether it be their homework, whatever it is, I think that, um, you know, you have to decide what's important. So, um, but I have always, I mean, and, and I, uh, not only friends and connected over the years, but I'm just so fascinated by fear mm-hmm. and that it could be something that um, both weaponizes people, um, allows them superpower, but also can be so debilitating mm-hmm. that they get stuck and they can't move. You know, the house is on fire and I can't get off of my bed and I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Even to the point where it freezes people to their detriment, where you mm-hmm. would think that the single most important thing would be their longevity of their life or right. know, saving their own. People die in these situations because fear is so crippling. Mm-hmm. It, it's fascinating to me. It's, it's uh, you know, with all those things, this is so subtle and, and, and it's not... When we make the simplest decision at a philosophical level. And of course I've got this bias, so it might just be my bias where I go, you know, when, when you have something to do and then your kid says, Hey dad, can you do this with me? And you go, I can't now I'm busy. And then you sit back and you go, am I really busy? I'm like, am I too busy for this? Cause yeah. this is one of those memories of, yeah. you know, Hey, 
uh, richest man in the cemetery. Yeah. Like, uh, like th- that's my, my life's experience, my memories. The decision to close the computer or get off the phone call or put down your phone at the spiritual level is fear management. At the, the new, it's not about danger anymore. It's about, I have a fear that I'm going to lose out on this at a certain level. I mean, that's my conscious, unconscious bias yeah. of, and that's, so, so this is that, that false expectations appearing real, right? I'm visualizing something in the future that's affecting me in the, in, in the minute, in the moment right now. And I think that if we recognize this noxious, this unconscious, invisible element that fear has on us, uh, it starts to change our behavior because it's going to be there and you have a choice of it's your fuel. You go, you know, Customato, yeah. uh, Mike Tyson's original uh, coach, he's got this, this wonderful quote that I'm going to paraphrase. He says, like, fear like fire can warm your house and cook your food. But if you don't control it, it could burn your house down. It could it could burn you, and that's our same turn fear into fuel. It's it's going to be there. What are you doing with it? And uh, uh, you know it's 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 huge. You, you know, and it's funny because like every every phase, every ten years, like what was important to me when I was zero to ten changed when I was ten to twenty, twenty to thirty. I've had not debilitating fear, but uh, an unrealistic level of fear throughout my life as a kid, as an athlete, you know, when, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> I tell the story, I just told it to Jeff, uh, where there was, you know, the, the girl you wanted to go out with in high school was named Lucy and every guy wanted to go out with Lucy and I become friends with her, but like at a distance and I go, okay, this, this is prom this year. Okay, I'm gonna ask Lucy out. I'm like, I see her walking in the hall. Hi, uh, hi, Lucy. I'm like, <laughs> right. Hey, Tony, how you doing? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, yeah, did you want to ask me something? No, just saying hi. Right. Fuck. I can't, come on, man. I'm just so worried. Like she's like she's the most gorgeous girl. She's not gonna. So I go. Next day, I go. Okay, I'm just doing it. Hey, Lucy. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you. I um, you wanna go to the prom with me? And she's like, Oh my God, I I would have loved to, but I already got asked by John. And, you know, literally I'm going, John, like, I'm a better athlete than John. I'm better looking than John. I got better grades. And like, she would have said yes to me, but I was too afraid to ask her the day before. Sure. Someone ever asked her. So it's like fear in our lives. Like, you know, this in marketplace, business loves speed. Violence loves speed. Yeah. If you're hesitating, I'm not talking about like rushing head first to some shit without any education, but you know, speed is the most important thing when it comes time to make a decision. Yeah. And if you, there's an old, you know, remember Ed Parker, Kempo? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. he, he had an old... Uh, so, uh, funny story. Um, Ed Parker's nephew was my training partner in college. No so, way. Uh, Drake Parker, who I played football huh. with at Cal, um, he was one of my training partners. So we went, uh, you know, his parents live in Kaniwai mm-hmm. in, in Oahu. We got to go over there and stay one summer. And his dad, David Parker, who was an amazing dude, mm. um, since passed away. Uh, was Ed Parker's brother, 
Crazy. And, uh, you know, told us all these crazy stories about them as kids in Hawaii learning, you know, where Ed learned martial arts and gave us all this history. And, um, you know, Jeff Speakman, the perfect mm-hmm. weapon and Elvis and all that. So I was always a fan mm-hmm. of Kempo and, you know, Wild. the karate magazines and all that. Sure. So, yeah, just yeah. weird. Time. Weird. Weird. But the, the quote that I was going to share is he, he would say, and it's a fun one. He said, those who hesitate, meditate horizontally. <laughs> right. So he, yeah. like it. And, you know, he was talking about like sudden violence, but. But that could really apply to anything. Well, um, that was the one thing that I struggle with in jujitsu is it's very slow paced. Mm. Uh, it's very smooth. It's this. I'm used to like very explosive kind of move. And that's where Shandi's funny. He's like, stop hitting your you know power button. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you have to be smooth and like be patient in this and stop working so hard and just kind of like move through it. And it's uh, it's been good for me because everything we do has always been fast, short. It's a, it's a moving violent. meditation for you. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. the opposite of boxing. Yeah. And uh, for me, um, I, I'm such a boxing fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the fact that you take two individuals, you have all of this training build up, you put them within the, in the ring and these individuals get to go out and use their skill set to try to knock a man down. I mean, it's the most basic <laughs> primal thing on the planet. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's so interesting too. And I know you're a huge boxing fan. So I was going to kind of pivot into mm-hmm. this and I know it's impossible to compare boxers across generations. But people love to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, who would you say your top five boxers of all time are? Top five. Well, my favorite boxer is Sugar Robinson. Okay. We'll get a list here. He was uh, 201 fights, 174 wins, 19 losses, and 109 KOs. Now, I, I mean, he fought in the 20s and the 30s. Um, but the, the real clips of him fighting are incredible. The, uh, I met him uh, when he was in his 80s. And he had already Alzheimer's and stuff like that. And I was uh, I was on a trip to California um, in the 80s as well, doing stuff for... I was in Black Belt Magazine first in 1980, and I would go back every couple of years and did all the magazines. And as a huge boxing fan, when I heard that he had the Sugar Ray Robinson Foundation, I went and showed up one day, and it was a secretary there. And I said, hey, you know... Uh, is there a chance he's going to come in today? I'd love to get a picture with him, his autograph. And and she was like this sweet grandmother-like lady. She goes, sweetheart, we don't know when he's going to come in. He's not doing so good these days. He comes in once every week or two to sign some pictures and then maybe stays for a half hour. She goes, I can't tell you. I said, do you mind if I just sit here and wait? She gives me this like sad face and she says, okay, honey. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm reading because there were no Kindles or anything back then. I'm reading a book, and I'm, and I'm not on my phone because there's no digital phones. Right? Yeah. I'm just reading. There is no phone. And uh, right, and uh, and all of a sudden, I look up, and f- fucking Sugar Ray Robinson is coming in, and I, I got goosebumps right now, John. And he 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 comes in, and I'm like, I don't know what to do, so I let him go in, and then I come in, and then his secretary says he's he's here wow um come and you know get a picture quick and so i'm in there and i'm like you know because i i used to when i lived in montreal um i loved running and i my favorite runs were in blizzards Mm -hmm. because nobody was out and you just run you can't hear you got you know your your earmuffs or hat on and it's silent and it's just you just hear your breathing i just i would run but i would do this I would run every morning in the winter and then I would come back and have like oatmeal and a coffee and I would watch old fights 
mm. every morning for like two hours. And I would pull footwork drills and head movement and shit like that. And I'd build those into the classes. And I would watch uh, Sugar Ray Robinson all the time. So I couldn't believe like this guy's like an Here idol and influence series. Um, old old man, but I could see him in him, right? Yeah. The genetics there. And we're sitting there and, you know, he's shaking and he says, what's your name, young man? And I go, uh, Tony Blower, and he starts to write a thing here. He goes, where are you from, Tony? Um, and I go, Montreal. And he looks up, he goes, Montreal, Canada? And he had fought there in the day. And as soon as he started talking boxing, he was 30. His brain switched. And no we, like for 45 minutes, I just sat there where he's just telling me a story about boxing and, and, and his time in Montreal. Just sudden total recall. Right then, it was amazing. I goose, goosebumps right now. So, uh, sugar, uh, you know, obviously Ali, Cassius Clay, um, fifty six and five, thirty seven knockouts, crazy. Loved him. Uh, one thing I, that I loved about about Sugar Robinson was he was a true champion. He was an, uh, an elegant, yeah. eloquent man. He wasn't a thug. Yeah, you know, and he wasn't as much as you love Ali. Ali was also about getting in your head in the show and, and oh yeah. I mean the know, thriller from Manila and all you know, that. I mean, yeah. But even the way he manipulated the general public through to sell tickets and, and the stuff that he would do. Genius, right? Yeah. Um Hagler, of course. Uh sixty seven and three, fifty two knockouts. I loved Hagler because he was so scary. Oh his, just uh, dude, the shaped head. And I'm a South I'm a Southpaw. Yeah. I fight both sides, but but I'm a Southpaw, so I really dug him. Um, he uh, well, one thing that struck me was uh, watching the fight how long his limbs were mm. that I always thought he was like 6'4 right he wasn't yeah. I don't even think he was long 6 arms. feet tall I mean his arm like he just and he moved like Freddy Krueger so well <laughs> I mean everything was so like I uh, you know like um, I'll just give you an example like you watch Tyson Fury fight there's so many weird awkward positions he puts mm. it in that in terms of like boxing aesthetics uh, like it fucking, uh, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me, his mm -hmm. movement. I mean, it's pretty interesting to see him do his head movement because, I mean, he's pretty slippery. Mm. But I'm just used to these individuals like Hagler where, where as they're moving through space, it's so smooth. And I also want I also want fighters to look like fighters. I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I realized long ago that I was a fan of humanity because I fought against this for a long time. I was like, I oh, fuck people, I don't like them. And I realized I was a fan of humanity where I wanted to see the best in the world stand up on the biggest stage on their biggest mm. day against the biggest rival mm. and fucking reach and grab, you know, the brass ring and have glory mm. and, uh, seeing whatever, you know, like it's just not <laughs> what I'm used to. Right. Like it's, and these guys are like, they would light us up, yeah. right? Like, you know, you've been hit by good boxers. Yeah. I mean, I, I was friends with the Hilton brothers, uh, who, um, was it Davy Hilton fought a 15 round world title fight against who was Hagler's sparring partner? Uh, forgot his name. Uh, for a long, long time, they fought for the title. Here, let me look it up. Uh, it begins with a D. Man, I haven't talked about this in a long time. But these were five brothers. Um, um, Tiger Moore? No. Um, the answer is obvious 52 men. Leonard can thank sparring for Hagler. Was it um, Sugar Ray Leonard? It was uh, uh, Wayne Drayton? Fortune There's or no Jody Brody? 
No, no name with a last name, D, letter D. Used to be a Hagler sparring partner. Drayton? Is that a name? I don't know. Um, Anyways, the point of the story was, like, like I was friends with them, and I, I, I brought Matthew, who's a heavy, and these guys were fighting, like, 15-round fights before things went to 12-round. That's, that's how long. Jesus. And uh, I remember doing a boxing seminar for him at my school. He sparred 30 of my students in a row. And then I sparred him, didn't break a sweat, literally didn't get hit once. 30 guys trying to, we were all martial artists, yeah. like we didn't understand Bach. And I had gone to uh, Gleason's gym in New York. Mm-hmm. And I went in, I spoke to the manager. I said, listen, I'm a well-known self-defense instructor in Montreal. Um, I love boxing. I've never really trained. I'm not here to sucker punch somebody or do something. I'm not trying, I don't want to get hurt but I'd love to spar with a pro who, like in Montreal, I can't go somewhere because people go, oh, you're Tony Blauer, and then someone's going to take a cheap shot. Sure. And I stayed in my lane, but I was very opinionated about stuff. And uh, so this guy puts me in the ring with a guy who is ranked, I think, number, in the top 10. He was a middleweight. I was 168 pounds at the time. And I get in there, and I'm used to sparring my students that range from 12 years old to 50 years old and I'm like in my 20s and I'm used to sparring and when you're way better than your students who are intimidated by you you drop your hands you make a lot of mistakes that you would never make if somebody were better than you and I get in there and I'm so fucking nervous John I'm moving around I'm moving around and this guy's moving here and all of a sudden I go I fire a jab and I catch him in the nose and I say to myself oh fuck fuck. (laughs) No, but I say to myself, like, wow, that was, like, easier than I thought. Like, I can't believe he didn't move from that. And he's there like this, and there's, like, zero, like, emotion on it. But I just punched the guy in the face. So I go, okay. And you know that, that uh, is that a biblical expression that the fall comes before the pride? Yeah. So I'm here like this. I go, wow. Because I was so nervous. I go, maybe I'm better at this than I thought I was. Bing. So I fire another one. And as I fire the second one, I see my hand, everything goes slow motion, I see my hand dip. And I realized he had watched the first one just to read what my mistakes were. And literally the second punch, I fire and my hands, instead of coming back up, it goes dip down, which a lot of fighters do in pros. And as I see this, I see his center line here turn. And that's all I remember. He hit me between the eyes. I wake up like in a, Overhook, underhook, clinch against the ropes. Several seconds of my life are missing in Gleason's uh, um, gym where I had a flash knockout. I'm against the ropes. The guy's on. So I had I had obviously flash knockout, fell back into the ropes. He came in. I was able to grab him. And the next three rounds were, if you said to me, okay, final question, what was the one of the scariest times in your life? It was those three minutes or, or nine minutes uh, in the ring, it was terrifying. And I use that as an example, and I got way better at boxing. I continued to box. Um, but I tell people, particularly martial artists, I go, boxers don't practice pulling. No. And boxers don't practice missing. That became one of my slogans in scenario training yeah. and self-defense. Never practice pulling, never practice missing, because your body will do that in the real fight. And and the thing with wrestlers and boxers is everything they do, football players, yeah. is everything they do is real contact. Well, it's always appreciated Frank Mayer 
hey, um, it's not my job to get you to tap. You tap so I don't break your mm-hmm. fucking arm. And uh, I always thought that was an incredible because most people are like, oh, they're going for the submission. They're going for the tap, which is, you know, very similar within the BJJ. His deal is I'm going to fucking break your neck. I'm going to break your arm. You have to tap to get me to stop right. from fucking you up. And I, that's instantly made me a Frank Mir fan. But yeah. I have always said that for all of the martial arts and everything you want to get into, uh, the two people you don't want to face is even an amateur, well-skilled boxer. Yeah. Or a dude that wrestled at a high level, because mm-hmm. uh, those Agreed. individuals understand how to fucking grind and how to go, you know, go hard. All right, yeah. so we got uh, Muhammad Ali, we got Marvin uh, Hagler, we got Sugar Ray. Who's your other two? Was it six or five? Five. So uh, we we got three. We got two more. I thought I did four. Hold on no, a second. No, you gave me Muhammad Ali, you gave me Hagler, and you gave me Sugar uh, Sugar Ray Robinson. Sugar Ray Leonard. Oh, you okay? You throw yeah, Sugar Leonard, Ray Leonard for sure. There? Okay, and and and. The you know another hero, I got to hang out with Leonard a couple times. Had him in my car uh, one day when he was fighting Duran in Montreal, nineteen eighty. This is a crazy story. Um, someone comes into the gym and they and, and Leonard like I'm like, I mean who didn't idolize that yeah. Leonard? No, it's incredible. You know, and uh, someone comes into the gym and they go, um, Hey, did you hear Leonard Duran Olympic Stadium? I'm like, oh my God. And I turn to, and like there's six people standing there. I can't wait to meet him. How are you going to meet Sugar Leonard? I don't know. I'll figure it out. I got to meet him. I got to talk to him. Because he would do things in the ring that Bruce Lee wrote about. Yeah. So I go to the Paul Sove Arena where they're doing the, uh, like, uh, um, the warm-ups, you know, when they do the stuff for the public. And it was like, I'd never seen security like this. 80,000 people for the Olympic Stadium. This place is packed. And uh, I get to, I've got... Um, a magazine that I want him signed in a plastic bag and Sharpies and, and I'm squeeze up the front door and there's two giant bodyguard security. And I hear one of them say, I've never seen this many people and this tight security. I can't even go to the bathroom without letting somebody know and getting permission. And I, at the time, 1980, I was helping coach doing calisthenics and warm up like a semi-pro baseball team, and I had access to an old-school basketball gym where we would do the stuff, but it was like wooden floor, really old-school, beautiful. And I had keys to the place, and I see these two giant guys, you know, part of Leonard's entourage, and I say to the guys, I go, hey, what do you guys do on the weekend? Like, do you have, like, the fights next, next week? You're here for a week. You know, would you like a private place? No, uh, no press, no nothing play basketball old school gym wooden floor and they're like guy gives me his card he says call me later i call him later they invite me to the hotel uh uh roger and kenny leonard uh raised manager at the time comes down they want to meet me are you for real i tell them the whole thing they go okay let's set this up we can go tomorrow um and uh we'll meet you there guys are all on the bus i'm waiting to go and uh Leonard, Kenny Leonard comes up to me and says, hey man, something happened with the limo company and they fucked up. Do you have a car? I go, yeah. Can you take a couple guys over? Sure. Okay, you're going to take Ray and his two bodyguards. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't met the guy yet. Yeah. I go, did you just say Ray? Like, I don't know him as Ray, right? Yeah. And so he comes down, he shakes hands like this with me. He goes, hey. Yeah. Like this. 
soft, soft. I'm like, wow, that was really incongruent. Like, I'm like, holy shit. We get it. I'm driving a Monza, this tiny, I don't know, you know, Monza, yeah. my tiny car. Literally, the, the back seat is tiny. Like, they're, these guys are like your size bigger. <clears throat> they had to open the back windows for their elbows so they could both fit in the car. Sugar Ray gets in the car. Get a console. I've got the uh, um, Iron Mind, I think. I don't think they were around then. Like, I sort of had some sort of hand grip. Yeah. He picks up my hand grip. He puts his foot up on the console. And he goes, he goes, he goes, how you doing, toe? And I go, I couldn't talk. I was freaking out, man. Yeah. We end up, he goes there. He can't play. Because he can't risk yeah. jamming a thumb on the court. I'm playing 21 with Sugar Ray Leonard, like the first day meeting him, horse, yeah. doing shit. And every so often, he would um, stop because he's visualizing the fight. He'd wait for my shot, and he'd be moving and slipping and visualizing the most insane experience. He gave me tickets to the fight. Gave me. Do you remember his old Franklin boxing yeah. stuff? He gave me a tracksuit and oh, wow. and and that. So I think they're reprinting that on like what's it like a. a Roots of fights, or are they? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, and what's what's insane is uh, that years later, is doing stunt work in movies. Um, Robert Conrad, mm -hmm. Wild Wild West, semi pro boxer, mm -hmm. love martial arts. Um, I'm doubling him, and I go, this guy's like my childhood hero. I grew up in the '60s watching this. The first day on set, I wear the shirt Sugar Ray Leonard gave me, and you can't buy this anywhere. Yeah. Like if if you know anything about it, like I. There's a team shirt. So I'm, I see him staring at me, staring at me. And I'm hanging out. So I, I grab a coffee and I walk near him and he walks up to me and he goes, uh, I said, you, you're looking at my shirt, aren't you? He goes, yeah. I go, uh, I have a gym. He goes, how many bags? I said, 10. And I have a ring. He said, uh, I'll see you tomorrow, 6 a.m. And he fucking trained at my gym every morning before <laughs> for this I've had like insane stories of how I met Leonard uh, uh, Robert Conrad Stallone like insane stuff um, my last fighter that's uh, four right yep my last fighter is is a, a, a toss up because there's some some like classic classic guys uh, man I mean, because each era, each era had some amazing ones. I've never, no one's ever asked me this. Like, like who, you know, who are my, my faves? Um, I would love certain things about, about different guys. I don't like Mayweather. Yeah, I'm not a Mayweather fan. Um, I can appreciate how good he is, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, I don't. Well, I mean, it's, it's um, uh, like, uh, I'm not a huge Conor McGregor fan. But the fact that Connor was able to go the round, mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's not a boxer by skill trade. Right. Um, and to be able to get in there with probably one of the best defensive fighters to ever do this and to be able to go the distance in that, I mean, that it was impressive. Yeah, it's super impressive. Yeah. And people shit on him about it. And I'm like, oh, like these are individuals that have never been in the ring with a skilled fighter. And yeah. the fact that he was able to go and hold hang. his own yeah. and hang. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, that to me, uh, mad respect for him. The uh, did you see the Jake Paul fight versus Silva? I did. Do you think these are fixed? Um, I don't. So, uh, I mean, fixed he, as so he, far. Let me, let me, let I, me. I don't think like I have a hard time uh, think seeing Tyson Woodley um, or Anderson Silva taking a dive. 
Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like, like that's especially not, Anderson. Yeah. That's just not within their DNA. Um, do I think that the Paul brothers train? Yes. Do I think that if they didn't come from YouTube and weren't fucking ass clowns that we would see them if they were coming up within the ranks? I mean, they're big. They, they train their asses off. I mean, I've seen with, you know, that they have yeah. well skilled. They're boxers. Yeah. They're boxers. You know, the problem is, is they, you know, whatever their, uh, their pedigree, I guess you could say their maturation process to they're, boxing yeah. is so fucking weird. You know, if they had grown up in Atlanta and, you know, fought at the Y and Golden Gloves and this. Or they've been doing it for 10 years and now they popped on the scene. But But it is what it is. uh, Those individuals can box and they can throw punches. Now, um, do I believe that he twisted his glove and the dude dropped it? I mean, it looks bad. But I also know that there's no amount of money that I would want to do to go out there and get my fucking ass kicked and look like a fool. And and, uh, the... I mean, those guys can box. So, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. like, like if they were out there just fucking throwing. Hey, Bruce Lee used to do this. Like, like was that, is that a, I'm going to get ready for the move or yeah. is that just loosening up your hands? Well, I mean, if yeah. they were out there just throwing grapefruits and they didn't have footwork and they hadn't trained, I mean, but they, you know, they look the part. Mm-hmm. Um, they come in, they're, you know, well skilled. They understand about cutting a guy off in the ring. I mean, they have all the wherewithal to room to improve, but they're there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're, they're not. Um, you know, going to go take on Tyson Fury for the heavyweight. I mean, right. You know, you're not going to stack him up against a haggler and say, hey, you know what, they're going to, you know, do anything other than fucking get smashed. But they are skilled individuals. I have a hard time. Um, and I, you know, you never know really what's in a man's heart, mm-hmm. but I have a hard time seeing Anderson Silva go and take a dive. Mm-hmm. I agree. I just don't think it happens. So racking my brain, I'm going to go with Jack Dempsey. Okay. Um, and there's like other guys that I, it, and 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 really, it was um, with with like Dempsey. The stories of Dempsey's training, breaking concrete, and like uh, just I mean Rocky Marciano. I mean just the just those whole um, that genre of fighter mm-hmm. where they were just absolute Spartan individuals. I mean, it was like a cup yeah. of coffee, some toast, and breaking rocks for training. And, and I and I I select that. It's almost like when you're in Rocky three. Was it was that with Drago versus uh, Rocky Four? Rocky Four, yeah. You know, like that's, you know, running in, you know, chopping wood, running in the snow, yeah. dragging shit versus, you know, high tech stuff. Yeah. So I kind of like the, uh, and and probably and there were a lot of amazing, you know, Joe Lewis and Ezra Charles and all these like really yeah, Jack Johnson, you know, uh, and when you look back at those guys, like how often they were fighting and how much they were getting paid. Well, I mean, just the amount of fights these individuals did compared, I mean, it, it like, um, you know, um, Mike Khabib, right. Has what? 29 mm-hmm. fights and retires in his prime, whatever. I mean, you're talking about guys would do that in Sh- a year. Ray Robinson, 201 fights. Uh, we had three of the same. I had, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. I mean, how, how do you have a list sure. without Ali? Uh, I had Hagler, which is still one of my favorites. I had Sugar Ray Robinson, which is incredible. But I also have Roberto Duran. Mm. I love Roberto Duran. I mean, he fought. I mean, his first fight was in 68, and mm. his last was in 2001. Mm-hmm. The guy fought for over 30 years. I mean, yeah, in, in five, five gener- I mean, unbelievable. He was, I mean, 33 years active is incredible. And then I got to put Tyson in there. Mm-hmm. Did I not put Tyson? No, you didn't have Tyson. So... Uh, Tyson was uh, 128, one and two with 84 knockouts. I mean, Tyson fought 128 times. Yeah. I mean, uh, like to this day, um, when people ask me, one of the you know one of the more impactful things I've ever seen 
was seeing Tyson sprinting out of the locker mm. room with no socks on, black shorts, no entourage, no dancing, no bullshit, no music, just fucking storming out there yeah. and taking the fight to people. That to me, and just, just the head work, his ability to move his feet and get into different positions and just fucking so explosive and so ferocious um, that if you could just bottle some of that, mm. um, it's, it's fucking magic to me. Well, it's funny because in the... Um, uh, in the Leonard Hearns fight where Leonard knocked him out in, in the 12th round, 13th round, and, and when they were outside Caesar's Palace, 115 yep. degrees, Leonard's eyes closed. Um, and it starts off that what starts off is, I think, after the seventh round, he hits him with that weird uppercut, turns into a 26-punch combination. Yep. And I would ask people, I'd say, <clears throat> how do you, you know, how did Leonard beat you know, Hearns there, and and people will always like call the was that hooked to the body, yep. and then that uppercut, and I go, what about the will, the tenacity, the the audacity, the fear management? I mean, he was just getting blasted, and nothing was working, and to stay in there and going, I'm gonna figure this out, I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna, a lot of people don't look at that, yeah. you know, is that, and that's what I talk about was like the mind navigates the body. You can have all the skill sets there. But we've seen world-class people get scared and get hurt. Lombardi, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, you're in, you hear footsteps. That's a, you know, out mm-hmm. of, right out of your your community, right? You, Someone's like, oh, fuck, how close is this guy to me? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. What's neat about all of those fighters is they all did jab, cross, hooks, uppercuts, body shots. But uh, the stuff that connects you or me to some of them were were some of the intangible elements that made them unique even though they had the same you know it's like a like i would say recipes are available for everybody ingredients are available for everybody some people can't cook some restaurants suck so you know when you go if you know there's at one point i remember there's like sixteen thousand registered boxers in the america i don't know what the number is now but i go name them and like you can only name who are the top you know, fighters right now, you're going, uh, you know, like there's, well, it, I mean the same thing in the NFL. Um, it was a couple of years ago. I went to an event with Troy Benson who I uh, played with at the Eagles and is, you know, big, uh, honcho in the NFL now. And he said, I think it was like in the last, I think it was like 40 years, some, you know, whatever the span was about 40,000 guys played in the NFL. Mm. It was just over a thousand guys played longer than four years. Wow. And people are like, no. And then all of a sudden you're going through and you're looking at the names and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's one of those jobs where you either show up and they're there for a day or you play 10 years. Mm. And the guys that are there fucking camp out on their positions and become the best. And so it's a very, very small group of individuals, even though a large pool get put in, mm-hmm. that ends up doing it for a long time at a high level. Same in boxing. Mm. You know, I mean, when, I mean, and when it, you go through and you put in the best boxers and they list the top 100, it's from like 1801 to present day. Right. I mean, you're looking at like a hundred plus years, you know, of span, and it's you people go try it. Every, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's because it's it's such, um, it's like grueling. Well, there's nowhere to fucking hide. Yeah, and uh, you know, you have to be able to take those shots, and you have to be able to be resilient. And you've got to be able to train, and you have to be in a condition. And this, I mean, it's not just one. It's um, and and you got to be able to navigate it because it's such a nasty fucking business. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the Don King era, but mm-hmm. uh, mm. it's yeah. No, I mean it's I, I love it, and mm-hmm. uh, it's 
become, you know, like I, I felt like boxing died a little bit with the Klitschko's because they mm. were so unexciting. And now with, you know, uh, Tyson Fury and what we've seen within boxing, they've made it fun again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, Fury is so awkward and so unconventional that right. like it's, like you can't discount what he's doing. And he's going out there and he's fighting dudes and he's, you know, I mean, he's fighting guys and next thing you know, he's on stage with Steve Aoki fucking doing drinks in Vegas. I mean, yeah. you know, he is kind of cut of that old school cloth. Mm-hmm. I just wish we could get him in better shape. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he, I mean, w- before he kind of went into his spiral, he was pretty fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking at some old stuff of him when he still had hair mm-hmm. and he kind of looked like his brother was pretty fit, good shape. And then just fucking drugs and booze and coke and women. And it's, destroyed a, and it's, it's crazy because I when Ali came back and he was out of shape, but he could still move. I didn't enjoy watching it as much because like I had that same, uh, I, you know, boxer, like, like a classic boxing body is very aesthetic. You know, it's not overly muscled and you could just tell, okay, this guy's got, can move. Um, so it was, it was, it was weird. Even somebody who I loved like Ali when he came back after that big retirement, I always think when, um, I think it was Dana White made an interesting point about once you get done and then you're out of your prime, go the fuck away and mm-hmm. do something else. The problem is, is when these guys try to come back after the fact, you know, mm-hmm. the proverbial George Foreman, I'm going to come back and, you know, or Ali and these and different fighters or guys that were still, you know, wanting to go in the ring and still take the shots. All of a sudden, those shots when you're 20, maybe even in late 20s, early 30s are fine. But now, so when you're taking your late 30s and 40s, I believe the detriment mm-hmm. and the damage is so much more severe later on that I think that's where those guys get fucked up. Uh, pivot, mm-hmm. quick top five MMA fighters of all time. Hmm. Wow. I wish you'd pre-brief me. I could... I could. Uh, uh, I was going to throw the right. questions ahead of time, yeah, yeah. but I kind of yeah, wanted like to, to, yeah. to um, see. The um, So, Frank Shamrock. Okay. I thought, I thought he was... When he was in his prime, he was freaking insane. He could strike, he could grapple, he could kick, and he had the body, you know, like the the physique. Um, I think that I love Don Fry. Yeah. Just like salt of the earth. Like he said to me before the Tank Abbott fight, we had been there like for the week watching them, getting to know the guys. And, um, he said to me right before the fight, he leans in, puts his head near me. He says, pray for me, brother. Like, like, like I'm like, he was now what's interesting is like, why do you say that if you're not scared, you know, because it, it wasn't, it wasn't like a religious thing. Like sure. let's hold hands. And, and yeah. he, he was, but it wasn't like his voice wasn't great. He knew who was going to fight. Sure. So it's a, it's a, it's a neat thing about how people uh, process that. So, not an order of stuff. I, I became a big Conor McGregor fan. There's things that I wish uh, he didn't do. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, just like like anyone else, you wish like, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that or done that. Uh, but um, so Frank Shamrock, Don Fry, Conor McGregor's up there. Uh, love BJ Penn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, shit, I mean, like so many. I'd say, and it's interesting because I think St. Pierre is amazing, but 
his style of fighting I didn't like. Yeah. Like like in Mayweather, forget Mayweather's personality. Um, yeah, I, I don't like what Mayweather style fighting. Yeah. Right. So like Saint Pierre, I can appreciate everything he did, but but I wanted something more more dramatic, less a little less wrestling. Um, and uh, George, if you're listening to this, uh, I love you, man. And I'm kidding. You're number one. Uh, <laughs> just in case. It's uh, me managing fear. Yeah. And so uh, other other guys, man, I'm trying to think of some old school guys. Uh, I always liked Randy Couture. I yeah. was a big Randy Couture fan. So I, I like Chuck Liddell. I mean, just the fact he came out and threw fucking haymakers. Yeah. Um, I, I think the MMA uh, is kind of changed. I mean, you have this like John Jones, who's so fucking dominant, but you can't unfuck his life, kind of mm-hmm. get out of his own way. Um, you know, definite played with a lot of guys in the NFL, very similar. His brothers are playing in the NFL. These guys that live out on the rails, you know, they need to have this like fucking big highs, big lows to mm-hmm. be successful. Um, I just wish that he could just fucking rein it in. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy had more title defenses than anybody and has been such a dominant fighter. I wanted to see mm-hmm. the greatest in the world stand on the big stage and be successful. And I hate seeing yeah. self-sabotage. So, so I would go with, so I, I became friends with Randy. Um, and, and, uh, actually donated a bunch of high gear to his facility in Vegas so guys could uh, train. What was crazy is, um, do you remember Evan Tanner? Mm -mm. So Evan Tanner uh, was one of the early OG guys and uh, real interesting guy. He bought high gear personally. He recognized, hey, we're beating the shit over bodies. You can't practice ground and pound without pulling it or damaging so he bought high gear of his on his own volition back when you, you couldn't afford it. Like just just to do it, he was out. He ended up tragically passing away in the desert on some just got lost and didn't have the resources and so that was that was crazy. But Evan I didn't know this. Evan had started training with Randy. This is before the first Ultimate Fighter show. Mm. I'm in Vegas and I knew a bunch of the guys I'd uh, uh I used to go to like a, a ton of the fights and stuff. And uh, so I knew Dana peripherally, uh, Joe Silva, because they brought me into that original one where I sucked so bad. And uh, I managed to create a meeting with Couture. We get together and I got the suit in the bag and I'm explaining, listen, you can do ground and pound. You can drop elbows. Like you can't do that with somebody with a conventional boxing headgear on. So this allows you to protect the fighter. I'm doing my whole spiel. And he goes, well, let me see it already. And I open it up. He takes it out. And he goes, this is your gear? He says, I've been using this for like like <laughs> months. Evan Tanner yeah. bring, brought it into the gym. So uh, that was our, it was a pretty funny anecdotal story. But uh, yeah, Couture, why I loved Couture the most is the transformation he did. Yeah. The, like for, remember I said earlier with the boxers, you know, we had, there's some attribute about them because everyone had the courage to walk into the ring. Everyone fought hard. They didn't tap early. They gave everything. And each, like, Liddell was known for his wild left hook. Yeah. And Couture was known for uh, his, dirty ten, his tenacity yeah. Yeah. and his inside the clinching yeah. and just that. But my favorite thing when I think of Couture was transforming his body so that he looked like Captain America. Yeah. So that, and that... Because they're all all of these guys are good fighters, sure. So, but yeah. Couture definitely. Uh, the only other one I got to throw in there is Horace Gracie. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, mean uh, like the first UFC number one, incredible. I mean, goes in there 
And uh, it's kind of interesting. You see him measuring these guys, measuring, and then the minute he kind of figures it oh, out. Oh, draws their attack. And then, yeah. And, you know. Um, you know, and that was really how the world got introduced to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. When now all of a sudden, you know, here's a guy who very unassuming comes in and is able to submit these guys. And, uh, dude, I think that really altered the trajectory so if, of this if, thing. if your question was, I mean, I have huge respect for Hoyce uh, for that. Uh, if your question was most influential and most important MMA guys, I'd have put him as number one yeah. for that reason. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and you got to have GSP in there, even though his style of fighting wasn't exciting. Yeah, um, incredibly dominant, and you know, considered one of the best oh, no, to ever do uh, it. Uh, but amazing. yeah, I'm, I, and then I'm, I, I really like, I definitely dig Khabib, and I mm. like, I dude, all the Dagestan fighters. I mean, the the Sambo and their whole deal. Those guys are. I, they're bringing something in that's making him dominant, and the other fighters and, will and, pick it up. And certain people, you know, like for a brief period, Clay Guida, right? Mm-hmm. And then you got uh, uh, Diego Sanchez for like, there was like a few fights where he went, this kid is insane. Yeah. And then something happens, and, you know, you just, you, it's weird because you. Well, uh, there's so many fights. So this is the thing I love about the USC or uh, UFC. I mean, there's so many fights. I mean, it's like, I mean, I think there's one tonight. Right. Uh, you know, there was, I mean, uh, Alex uh, was a Parita just fought recently. I mean, the amount of fights that they're doing, it's such a high volume mm-hmm. that uh, like, you know, somebody kicks ass, there's going to be somebody next and next and next. I mean, there's new champions happening all the mm-hmm. time. It's, you know, maybe a guy in boxing, what fights once, maybe twice a year. I mean, uh, you know, Fury fought and now he's going to have another fight. I mean, it's just yeah. like, Every weekend. Every weekend. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, every weekend you have a chance for a new, you know, superhero, for, for a new individual to stand on the and podium. And people, as much as we love boxing, um, in terms of grit and grind and gruel, and like the, you know, I made a joke after the Holyfield fight. I go, if, if boxing said, you know, let's allow biting into clinching when Tyson bit him, uh, you know, I said for a month or two, there'd be more bites. And then we would figure out how to clinch in yeah. a way that protected our ears. And we developed the awareness. Okay, push the guy away now, hit him with an uppercut. Um, so imagine, you know, the early UFCs where you had, you know, elbows and headbutts and, and, and you know, uh, it, it to protect yourself from kicks, even like, okay, I'm in a clinch. Okay, foot stomp, kick the calf uppercut punch the leg like all the shit you can do snap the head it's insane uh what these guys do to their bodies and uh and what they do to get ready for a fight like that it's yeah, i mean insane. We, we've seen this evolution and now um you know the guys that are really doing well have a background within wrestling mm-hmm. you know they've uh, effective wrestlers they've learned bjj so they know submission so it's kind of in this like catch wrestling submission bjj kind of deal and then all of a sudden you bring in guys that are strikers and it kind of goes this way, and then all of a sudden, a guy, you know, comes in and is a monster. Well, remember Machida? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so you have your, and there, I mean, there's so many, so many greats. Remember what was the classic? Um, well, I mean, uh, like think about Ronda Rousey, right? An incredible judo player mm-hmm. goes in, is crushing everybody. Holly Holm comes in, you know, all of a Kicks sudden now she's head. fucking keeping her distance. Skilled boxer catches her with a big kick. That was and, insane. And I mean, Ronda was an absolute fucking buzzsaw. She was mm-hmm. killing people. And you bring in somebody that has a different style. And the crazy part is she was on a talk show leading up to the fight talking exactly about what she was expecting to happen mm. with Holly. And she came out and did it exactly as she described. Mm. So, so she knew what was going to happen. Mm. 
and it became a worse reality. I mean, so it just goes to show that the minute that all of a sudden somebody's at the top and is showing a skill set that looks unfathomable and impossible to beat, somebody else walks in that has slightly different skill set and absolutely wrecks. I mean, well, I think and you about know, And you know the expression, like styles make fights. Yeah. And uh, it's it's neat. It's, it's, again, two things. One is, did you... F- or did you watch the tape and figure out what you need to do? Mm-hmm. And then if that's not working, can you pivot? Can you adapt and create uh, like something else? So it's the Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get knocked down. Yeah. So guess what? Mike Tyson wasn't the first person to say that. Mm. Google this, research this. It was the great Joe Lewis. But Tyson made it famous. And, and uh, only because it came up here, I had to say that. Okay. Uh, because people say that it, it was, uh, I believe it was Joe Lewis. And he said, everyone's going to plan until they get hit. Something to that effect. Tyson, you know, is a huge boxing historian. Sure. So he probably quoted Joe Lewis at some point, And then somebody quoted Mike Tyson said this to me. Yeah, and then it just gets lost. And then it becomes, becomes that. But as a, as a boxing nut, you'll appreciate that. If do the research and, and, uh, because I think the origin was was way before that. But it's like the military expression, like, you know, no plan survives first contact. Sure. Right, so. Well, dude, um, that's all I got. Nice. Very, I mean, that was, very interesting conversation. No, it was incredible. I mean, we uh, started on this interesting cascade into fear and understanding and more importantly how to manage it. And I got to finish up with what I consider one of the more things that I was excited for you to come talk yeah. about was one boxing, fighting. MMA, fighting yeah. and styles in this. And and, 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 and and the thing that for your listeners is this still has very much to do with everything in the first part of the conversation. All of these martial artists, combatives guys, MMA guys, they've all to one degree or another figured out through osmosis or good coaching how to manage fear and direct it into something. Because there's, if you look at, there's two guys in the ring and there's 20,000 people going, boo, yeah. I'd have done this, I'd have done that. Yeah. I remember one fight where Diego's getting his ass kicked Imagine this. My so my family, of course, has been around all of all of this. Um, we moved to California, and um, my daughter Olivia's eight or nine years old. I go, listen, we've had a, a crazy year. I want to spend some time with you. What do you want to do? We're in California now. We got you know uh, 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 Marine Land or whatever they call it. Uh, we got Disney over here. What do you want to do? And my eight year old says, I want to go to Vegas and watch a UFC with you. Mm. And I'm going, your mom's not going to believe you said that. She's going to think that. <laughs> this is a true story, John. Yeah. And I go, come here right now. Tell mom what you just said. And she goes, I want to go to the UFC and watch I want to go to Vegas and watch a UFC with dad. And my wife, Jessie, looks at me. And she's like, I go. so I make it happen. We go. We're there. And and because I know people, like, we're there early. We're watching them build the octagon. We're in early. She's getting autographs, meeting the fighters. We got... Uh, decent seats were sitting there and behind us is like a drunk group of guys yelling, you know, Uma Plata, looking all like, like they're just <laughs> calling moves, right? Yeah. I'd have done this. I'd have done that. And, and my daughter, Olivia is like looking at me like this, rolling her eyes and, uh, and Diego's getting pounded. Right. And these guys are going, come on, man, shrimp. And they're yeah, calling man. up moves. And uh, side survival. My 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 daughter's rolling her eyes. So I look at her. I go, I go. What do you think? She's like, I go. Like, what do you think Diego should be doing? She goes, That's obvious, Dad. I go, What is it? Out of the mouths of an eight year old. 
She goes, it's obvious he needs to stop getting punched in the face so much. <laughs> like, seems simple. Good instructions. Like, Diego, stop getting punched in the face. So very, very, uh, very interesting. But all of all of this, I believe, um, comes back to how how we perform is intrinsically connected to what we're thinking. How we think affects how we feel. How we feel affects how we think. Both influence how we move. And so, the more you understand about the the uh, unconscious conscious effects of fear, even if your type A personality can't say the word fear. Yeah, I'm just a little bit nervous before this. Or, I don't know, man, I'm not hungry right now. Like, if you can lean into that and go, what is that? And the more you understand it, that's why I asked you, I never finished it. If you've ever done an armor's course, I tell people, like, if you do an armor's course where you're not doing any live fire, I believe you're a better shooter after the course because you've demystified the operating system. Mm. When you better understand your operating system, you can go, oh, fuck. I'm thinking these negative thoughts, that's an emotional weight. If you've been ever waiting for potentially good news, bad news, and you get good news, the first thing you do when you get good news is stand up. Someone's like, phone rings. Yes, like we, we stand up. And so I use that as a metaphor. What is the weight of fear? You get good news and you stand up. It's like this weight has been lifted off you. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of us, minus the unicorns, John, um, for a lot of us, we if we don't cultivate the self-awareness to go, fear is weighing me down, I can't perform at my best. If I change my relationship with fear, I change my mind. If I can change my mind, I can change my path. I can suddenly make these these shifts that change the quality of my life. Dude, I love it. So... Um that's all I got. Dude, that was great. Tony. Thank, thank you so much for coming to Austin and doing Power Athletic thank Radio, you, man. dude. It Love was it. great to connect. I mean, we haven't seen each other in uh, in person in a few years. years so yeah. It was awesome to have you and I uh, really appreciate you coming. Yeah, and it's very, very different. This would not have worked on Zoom to this nah, degree. Not so, at all. No, no, this it, is way better. The chemistry is way better, so 100%. Well, cool. well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio.